0: Most people have heard of Lawrence of Arabia and the romantic tale of his involvement in the revolution that liberated the Middle East from Ottoman rule during World War I. But few people are aware that behind T.E. Lawrence, there stood an even greater champion in the cause for freedom. And no, it wasn't some moustached army general or cigar-chomping politician. It was a woman the first ever to graduate with first-class honours from Oxford. One who spoke six languages, had climbed the highest mountains in Europe in her underwear, was an accomplished archaeologist, surveyor and photographer. A scholar of both Arab and Persian ancient poetry, she conducted six separate expeditions into the forbidding deserts of both Mesopotamia and Anatolia, had met virtually every tribal, sheik and warlord in the region and was treated by them as a princess and honoured guest. It was Gertrude Bell who provided accurate maps, intelligence and favourable contacts to both Lawrence and the British High Command and was instrumental in the success of the Arab Revolt. If you're just a little bit curious about this incredible woman, who dared to go where few Western men had ever been, then join us as we dive into the life and times of Gertrude Bell, scholar, mountaineer, spy, and kingmaker. Heroes and Legends Documentary Channel Not just the who, and where, but also the why. Our story begins in the early 1850s. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing and England was its undisputed epicentre. Numerous breakthroughs in technology, chemistry and engineering spurred the development of all kinds of industrial processes, which in turn created a new class of citizen, the scientific industrialist. Men who had been typically born into a modest social stratum but who possessed some degree of mechanical aptitude found the freedom in Great Britain to produce gadgets and gizmos that might find their way into either homes or factories where they could improve productivity or exploit new opportunities and make them rich beyond their wildest dreams. It was the time of unrestricted capitalism with cashed-up investors Chemists, engineers, and other scientists now joining the aspiring ranks of the merchant class, who were themselves the nouveau riche of the previous century. This new brand of entrepreneur was often of humble origins, frequently self-taught, but typically an astute and shrewd operator, having graduated from the school of hard knocks. And boy, did the toffs at the top of the food chain despise them! But many of these new businessmen were different to the fortune hunters of previous generations. Perhaps because of their often modest backgrounds, the influence that money brought eventually began to affect society itself. They began to fund public education, amenities and hospitals, not just as a way to cement their own legacy in buildings and stone, but also to give something back to their communities. However, rapid urbanisation, the insatiable demand for energy and mass production of course had its dark side too, such as extreme environmental pollution, workhouses lacking any kind of safety or regulation and ghettos full of the sick and destitute, often the victims of greedy entrepreneurs who lacked what we would today call a duty of care. These sometimes exploited both children and adults without conscience or accountability. It was the era of Charles Dickens, the author who so vividly brought urban poverty to life in novels such as Oliver Twist, A Tale of Two Cities, A Christmas Carol, David Copperfield and Great Expectations, who all explore themes of contrast between poverty and wealth of commoners and the aristocracy, coming of age, and a need for social justice. The often inhumane conditions that workers toiled under, in turn, spawned the proliferation of progressive political activism, trade union representation, and welfare societies that vocally challenged orthodox cultural norms. Parliament, too, increasingly found itself subject to the Vox Populi, where a number of wealthy industrialists with a social conscience now regularly also pursued political careers and pushed through reforms on subjects as wide-ranging as emancipation and religious discrimination, fishing quotas, child protection and even food hygiene laws. The Liberal Party emerged as an increasingly powerful voice that advocated for government intervention in education, welfare and public health to break the cycle of poverty, crime and destitution. One such progressive entrepreneur was Isaac Lothian Bell, at the time easily the most powerful and wealthy industrialist in Britain. The grandson of a Carlisle blacksmith, his father kept the family in the metal business by establishing an iron foundry. This foundry flourished and afforded Isaac an education, first in Newcastle, then Edinburgh, and later in the Sorbonne in Paris, studying metallurgy and chemistry. He would return to England and, in partnership with his brothers and friends, start numerous companies, for example, becoming the first to establish an aluminium smelter in Britain. A metal which, at the time, was more expensive than gold. He pioneered innovative steel production techniques, again chairing the only company capable of manufacturing steel ropes and cables for the shipping industry. His innovations were so versatile that he often boasted his company could manufacture anything from a needle to a ship. At its peak, His entities manufactured a third of all the steel produced in Britain, a substantial portion of it directed towards the growing rail and bridge infrastructure of the country, much of which he personally owned, along with collieries, quarries, foundries, smelters, and factories that employed almost 50,000 workers and operated 24 hours a day. Somehow, he also managed to find time to write dozens of cutting-edge scientific articles. And besides becoming a Fellow of the Royal Society, he was on the board of numerous academic and industrial associations before deciding to run for Parliament as a Liberal candidate on a platform of free trade, which of course would benefit his own business. He was the Elon Musk or Bill Gates of his day, Interestingly, his enormous wealth wasn't poured into ostentatious mansions or opulent, self-indulgent lifestyles. Like many Englishmen from the harsh north of Yorkshire, for much of their life the Bells were frugal, opting to live comfortably in a modest-sized house. Later on, they built a much larger and elegant home on an estate they called Rounton. But the upsized building was still not quite a manor house, yet was intended to serve as a company headquarters for the now ageing tycoon, being designed and furnished by his good friends William Morris and John Ruskin, well-known social reformers and advocates for a return to craftsmanship, fair working conditions, and the need for government intervention for social progress. Peculiar bedfellows, perhaps, Yet Bell, who was also a close friend of Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley, despite his capitalist agenda, also strongly advocated for government subsidy in scientific research and technical development, fearing that, without its active participation, Britain would fall behind Germany, whose support of the Krupps and Thyssen steel industries indeed saw his greatest fears realised by the onset of World War I, when Germany's industrial base indeed outstripped Britain substantially. Bell's many achievements in the fields of chemistry, engineering and business earned him a rank in the peerage, becoming a baronet in 1885. As you might expect, Isaac Lothian Bell ruled his family with the same kind of iron fist and stern discipline that he ran his companies. A strict and curmudgeonly father, his children were far from spoiled, and his son Hugh, despite growing up in his father's shadow, with little time or affection shown to him, would step into the family business on his father's death and take seriously the important relationship between employer and worker. Hugh was an altogether different individual to his father. He attended many of the same universities, studied most of the same subjects, and when he returned to England, immersed himself at the grassroots of the business, getting to know all the intricate details of the vast conglomerate of companies that the family operated. He was no freeloader and could be frequently seen pacing the floor of foundries or inspecting the coalface in the quarries. Unlike his father, He knew many hundreds of his workers by name and took a much more active role in their welfare than did Bell Sr. Hugh instituted a huge program of building workers' housing estates, schools, libraries and public halls that would provide a community hub for his employees. He purchased a country estate purely to be used as a free holiday venue for underprivileged workers and their families. And despite being a vocal critic of Karl Marx, he understood where he was coming from and even endorsed the formation of trade unions to advocate on behalf of his workers. Hugh was, nevertheless, an avowed supporter of the free market, being convinced that this was the best and most efficient vehicle of prosperity, him being a political liberal like his father. Considering the many political incarnations of the word liberal today, and to avoid confusion, this might be a good time to define and discuss the Liberal Party of the United Kingdom, which came to dominate British politics for much of the 19th century. The Liberal Party was originally formed by the amalgamation of several unrelated factions, most notably the Whigs and the Radicals. The Whigs were an aristocratic party formed in the 17th century, whose central motivation was to oppose absolute monarchy and to support a constitutional one with power vested in the Parliament instead of the ruler. Given their initial opposition to the Catholic Stuart claims to the throne, their opposition to any rights being granted to Catholics was also initially a core policy. The main opposition to them at the time were the Tories, who were strongly supportive of the Crown, even if the King were to be Catholic. They were nevertheless also strongly supportive of the Church of England, which held a tight reign over religious dissenters, whether they be Protestant or otherwise. For many years, Tories and Whigs opposed each other in Parliament, with clashes coming to a head in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. When Catholic King James II was deposed by his otherwise loyal Parliament, who were opposed to his promoting the interests of Catholics and Protestant nonconformists within the realm. His replacement in a coup d'etat that installed his daughter Mary and her Dutch husband William of Orange ushered in not only a renewed surge of Anglican power and anti-Catholic sentiment, but also bolstered the power of Parliament as the ultimate authority. Despite their differences, both the Tories and Whigs could in essence be described as conservative in outlook. But by the early 1800s, they both came under increasing criticism by a loose coalition of parliamentary reformers that were known as Radicals. The Radicals lacked a unifying ideological base. Leadership or internal structure, but they were unified in their views that the current state of politics was entirely in the hands of the aristocracy, with little consideration for the common population. Some radicals advocated for broader voting rights. Some had an anti-slavery agenda, while others were for granting home rule in Ireland and religious tolerance in general, while others were for low taxes freedom of the press poverty relief and anti-protectionism by the mid 1800s the whigs had come to associate themselves increasingly with wealthy industrialists who by the very nature of their business focus pushed for free trade and international cooperation efficient industrialization increasingly made the institution of chattel slavery redundant and the Whigs had by now also largely reversed their staunchly anti-Catholic position. After all, why have an enemy when you can have a customer? This notion of consumer economics also influenced their thinking on welfare and prosperity, because if you're poor, you can't buy stuff. By 1859, this more socially progressive element within the Whigs saw them merge with many radical parliamentarians to form the Liberal Party. Now, at the time, only 3% of the adult population in Britain was eligible to vote, but Whig agitation in Parliament in the post-Napoleonic era saw an expansion of the electorate to 6%, effectively doubled with an expanding urban middle class and voters eventually included working class men over 21. Not just the landed gentry who previously controlled the votes of entire boroughs. This opened the way for even greater reforms benefiting the working poor, such that the Liberal Party, benefiting from the flush of sympathetic working class voters, dominated elections right into the early 20th century and implemented sweeping reforms on education, tenancy laws, religious discrimination, workplace safety wages and working hours that have continued to form the bedrock of Western society ever since. But by the turn of the century, many disparate elements within the party saw it eventually fracture, while the Tories, now increasingly feeling the need to cater to a new class of voter, themselves began to soften their stance on many previously hardline issues such that they too moved to a much more moderate, though still conservative, position. Large numbers of Liberals, who were opposed to excessive government intervention, eventually abandoned the party to rejoin this more centre-right Tory party, which eventually morphed into the modern Conservative Party. It was now composed not only of the upper classes, but more broadly commoners of the middle class, including shopkeepers, businessmen and professionals. The more radical elements within the Liberals also abandoned them to form workers' parties such as the Labour Party, leaving the eviscerated Liberal Centre a mere shadow of its previous self. This merging and fracturing of frequently opposing ideological elements is why the Liberal Party, in some countries like Australia, sit on the conservative side of politics with what might be referred to as a classical liberal agenda, while in others, such as the United States, they sit on the socialist left in what can be regarded as social liberalism. But in the UK, where the Conservative Party essentially absorbed all the classical liberal elements, the Liberal Party itself ceased to exist as a distinct entity with its several subsequent reincarnations being of little ongoing political consequence. But returning now to mid-19th century Britain, industrialist tycoons now saw to it that British coal, steel, rail and shipping fed the expansion of empire into Africa, India and beyond, while at home the changing political climate saw a gradual shift from the opulent self-indulgence of the Georgian era into the more self-restrained and socially responsible atmosphere projected by Queen Victoria and her German husband Albert. Shouldering ever greater responsibility for the family's fortunes, at the age of 23, Hugh eventually married the daughter of a prominent local merchant and their first child, Gertrude, was born in 1868 at the home of the family patriarch, in Washington Newhall. But the young couple were desperate to make a home for themselves, eventually moving into their own socially conscious, web-designed seaside home at Redcar, near Middlesbrough, where Hugh would be close to the industrial heart of their business. Despite being the sixth richest family in Britain, the home, though stately, was hardly a sprawling mansion, with Hugh being equally frugal as his father. Unlike the pater familias, Hugh Bell was an affectionate husband and a doting father, always making sure to be home on time and spending quality time with his family. But the idyllic life soon fell apart when his wife died shortly after giving birth to Gertrude's brother Maurice in 1871. Distraught at the loss, Hugh was for some years a broken and lonely man whose sole joy was taking long walks on the beach with Gertrude, while an aunt moved into the residence to help raise the children while he was away on business. As time went on, father and daughter developed an unbreakable bond of trust and affection. But the magnate's sisters were nevertheless busy behind the scenes, scheming to marry him off again, because in their eyes he was far too eligible a catch to remain a young widower. So it was that they introduced him to the daughter of a prominent physician, Florence Olive. Florence was a cultured and accomplished classical musician who had grown up in Paris where her father served in the British Embassy. When he suddenly died, she and her mother were forced to return to London, where the drab climate and dreary social scene contrasted with the colourful and vibrant culture of Paris. She was, in her own way, as miserable as Hugh, and when his sisters orchestrated a meeting, they both were somewhat reticent. Yet Florence later described her thoughts upon seeing Hugh for the first time, as his being beautiful, yet very sad. For his part, Hugh was deeply concerned that Florence would be miserable living in the polluted industrial heartland of England, far away from the London elite and its cultural centres. Hugh can just imagine the level of snobbery that must have existed when one of the richest men in the world fretted about being accepted into high society. It was as if money only made your effrontery worse. But Florence too was, in many respects, a misfit. Homesick for Paris, she also found it hard to integrate into London society, being neither particularly wealthy nor of genteel heritage but perhaps more importantly, like Hugh, she was very family-oriented and significantly, she loved children. Hugh gradually warmed to the idea of marrying again and soon enough they tied the knot in a low-key ceremony, spending a short honeymoon in the United States, visiting Florence's sister and her husband, Frank Lascelles, a senior diplomat working at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. Upon their return, Florence rolled up her sleeves and determined that if she couldn't live in Paris, she was going to bring Paris to Middlesbrough. She instigated regular tea parties in the garden, to which she invited prominent local couples. But Yorkshiremen, it goes without saying, are not like Frenchmen, and they generally hated dressing up let alone attending parties, such that their wives almost always came alone. Yorkshire women, too, were not what she expected. They spoke little and bluntly. They were as frugal with their words as they were with their money, neither offering nor entertaining small talk, without significant effort made to engage them. But Florence persisted, and the local ladies, seeing no agenda, outside of socialising, eventually warmed to her, such that garden parties soon became a regular highlight at their home. But Florence's greatest challenge was in winning over the children. Maurice, who had no memory of his mother, warmed to her quickly, but Gertrude, already a feisty and precocious girl, had little time for rules and regulations. Before Florence arrived on the scene, Gertrude had already developed a strong independent streak, which was only strengthened by the doting and permissive attitude of her father. A string of governesses had resigned, unable to rein in the boisterous and adventurous child. Florence quickly came to realize that taking a hard line would make her own life a nightmare, so she chose her battles carefully, and focused on building their relationship, rather than laying down the law. Just as well, because Gertrude was not the kind of child who could easily be forced to conform. She was busy climbing trees, galloping horses, and getting dirty in the gardens, helping the workers plant flowers. On numerous occasions, she would encourage her younger brother to jump off high walls, climb onto the roof or race on horseback, with Maurice often ending up with bruises and concussion as a result of trying to keep up with his older sister. But here too Florence patiently persisted and somehow fostered a love of style and fashion in the young Gertrude as well as an interest in music, literature and the theatre, with the children regularly putting on plays to entertain the adults it wasn't long before Gertrude began calling her mother, and though she was always very careful to avoid being labelled as the evil stepmother, this prudent exercise of discretion in winning over the willful young Gertrude eventually paid off as their relationship deepened, though it would never approach the limitless affection she had for her father. For her part, As she matured, it was clear to Gertrude how much Hugh loved Florence, and how happy she made him. To her credit, Gertrude didn't view this as a threat to her own relationship, and her lack of jealousy was, in turn, appreciated by Florence, who loved her like a daughter. Indeed, it wasn't long before Florence gave birth to children of her own, Hugo in 1878, Elsa in 1879, and Molly in 1881. With these children too, Hugh, though often away for days at a time, threw himself into the joys of fatherhood, playing chasing games, climbing trees, and wrestling on the lawn with them, while their mother looked on fearfully, lest somebody got hurt. Gertrude appears to have accepted this enlarged family, again, without too much jealousy becoming particularly close to Hugo in future years, though she was by now becoming increasingly restless and in need of greater stimulation. Now, there was a prevailing medical belief in England at the time that the physiological constitution of females differed significantly from males, such that excessive mental exertion, while negligible in its effects on men, was detrimental to the health of women. Numerous books had been written attesting to the apparently indisputable fact that academic study was so harmful to the fairer sex that it would manifest itself in physical disease, possibly even death. For adolescent girls in particular, education was considered to be a serious health risk and that the onset of puberty with its attendant menstrual strains, would cause them to lag behind boys in academic capacity. It was considered best practice to home school young women in the art of conversation, basic arithmetic, music, and, at best, literature, which, along with handicrafts such as needlework, would provide the necessary foundations for them to snag themselves a decent husband and then to competently run a household. While we, of course, view this today as entirely preposterous, it's perhaps salient to note that the loss of iron during menzies frequently leads to substantial anemia in women with its concomitant symptoms of fatigue, weakness, general malaise, and often mental fogginess. During an age where vitamin and mineral supplements were still a long way off in the future, and the mortality rate during pregnancy was tragically high, we can perhaps see how this theory arose, outside of the narrow perceptions of misogyny, though there was plenty of that too, to be sure. Nevertheless, though Florence more or less subscribed to the theory, to her credit, she saw to it that all of her girls received a decent education. But by the age of 15, Gertrude, who was thought to have had a photographic memory, was so far advanced of her home school tutors that she was literally becoming unbearable to live with. So Florence felt compelled to enrol her in a prestigious ladies' college in London, which she found similarly odious, stifling, and restrictive in its academic offering, being, again, more geared towards exposing girls to potential husbands than to any kind of academic or professional career. Indeed, it was originally an institution set up for training domestic governesses. The students would be chaperoned to galleries, theatres and gardens, and the courses of instruction that attended those outings were largely oriented towards making them into good conversationalists rather than scholars. Despite these limitations, Gertrude excelled in both poetry and history, such that her teachers were all in agreement that she should be allowed to enroll for further study at Oxford, which was, at the time, still a completely masculine domain. Both Hugh and Florence had their reservations, But Gertrude's teachers were so impressed by her talents that they persuaded the parents to relent, and at the age of 17, she entered Lady Margaret Hall, one of only two marginal colleges for women at Oxford, where she frequently butted heads with her condescending professors, yet in just two years, nevertheless became the first woman in England to graduate with a first class honours degree in modern history. Meanwhile, her stepmother Florence was no slacker either. She had long been immersed in investigating the living conditions of foundry workers employed in the family business. As I mentioned, the Bells were unusually invested in the welfare of their workers, with Hugh being a true believer in the emerging ideology that established a duty of care by both employers and the government in the well-being of the working class. Florence took her role as wife of the CEO seriously and was front and centre in the building of recreation halls, theatres and parks where workers and their families could enjoy some downtime together, away from the pubs and gambling dens that were such a drain on the health and morality of society. She formed a number of women's auxiliaries that assisted mothers with the care of their children and provided hot meals and clothing to families in need. Among British workers, those employed by Hugh Bell were the best paid in the country and there was much hope that its successes would be replicated both by other companies as well as rural farming estates that were typically owned by aristocrats. Florence would often recruit Gertrude during her holidays to assist her in interviewing housewives, writing down their stories, tabulating their family budgets, and gathering statistics that she would eventually publish as a clear expose on the plight of the poor, who were typically reviled by the middle and upper classes as somehow being responsible for their own squalor. She showed unequivocally that women in particular were caught in a cycle of poverty, exacerbated by poor health, repetitive pregnancies, and a lack of education. This situation was only made worse by rampant alcoholism and domestic violence, perpetrated by similarly demoralized and disconsolate husbands who saw no future beyond working themselves to an early death in a mine or factory. A family's plight would quickly become catastrophic should the primary breadwinner be killed or disabled in an accident such that their meagre source of income and support evaporated. Florence's book, At the Works, was a sobering reminder of the widespread social problems facing much of the population, pointing to the need for better education, public recreational facilities life and disability insurance programs and aged care pensions and it served as an important source of data for many future government reforms. Several historians believe that Gertrude's participation in this project of her stepmother's helped shape her views on her later building the women's hospital, public library and numerous schools she sponsored in Iraq. But we're getting just a little ahead of ourselves. Having returned home after obtaining her degree, the outspoken and headstrong young history graduate was less inclined than ever to settle for a life as a domestic housewife. So Hugh and Florence decided it was best for all concerned to send her on the obligatory European tour, where she could both satisfy her desperation to escape the mundane and perhaps increase her exposure to potential husbands. So it was that she was dispatched to Paris, where she would be met by her cousin and escorted on a grand tour to Eastern Europe, where her aunt and uncle, the Lascelles, were now working in the British Embassy in Bucharest, Romania. The Lascelles took her to numerous high society balls, where she hobnobbed with diplomats, aristocrats and intellectuals who were far less dismissive of women than she had experienced back home. Here it was perfectly acceptable even for divorced women to attend balls, and they were treated with no less respect and attention by men than debutantes such as Gertrude. Even royalty openly engaged in conversation with lesser ranks at these functions, and the Queen of Romania in particular took a shine to Gertrude, regularly approaching her at balls and even giving her gifts. After some months enjoying the social scene in Romania, she eventually made her way back home, where Florence was desperate to domesticate her by entrusting her with babysitting duties and home economics responsibilities. You see, in repressive Victorian England, morality was heavily bound up with duty. It was considered to be a woman's duty to keep a good household, to nurture and groom her children, and to promote her husband's good name. Women who were more concerned with pursuing their own personal interests, or worse, a career, were seen as fundamentally abrogating their duty both to their family and society, and hence were viewed as immoral. If we turn to Dickens once again, we can see the portrayal of such a woman, Mrs. Jellyby, in his novel Bleak House, a woman who is obsessed with supporting missionary and civilizing work in far away Africa, yet whose own house is a mess, her marriage a shambles, and whose children suffer from neglect. In this novel, Dickens was mocking the female activist and highlighting the old adage, that charity begins at home. It wasn't lost on Florence, and indeed a growing number of socialites, who held the keys to Gertrude's admission into privileged circles, that she was fast becoming a subject of scandalous gossip. Made all the worse, when she would regularly contradict a speaker at a dinner party, and interject her own political opinions, leaving the other guests aghast at her presumption. That's not to say that she didn't like to dress up, go to balls, or dance the night away. Indeed, she did, but by the age of twenty-four, she had become such an intimidating prospect to most men that there were few brave enough to consider a relationship with her. Her outspoken and frequently contrarian and belligerent attitude torpedoed any chance of being proposed to in London. So it was that when she heard that her uncle, Frank Lascelles, was about to take up the ambassadorship in Tehran, she threw herself into studying Persian. And when she visited him at the embassy six months later, in 1892, she knew enough of the language to get around. Gertrude fell in love with Persia writing glowing reports of the countryside, its people and culture.
1: Oh, the desert around Tehran! Miles and miles of it, with nothing, nothing growing, ringed in with bleak, bare mountains, snow-crowned and furrowed with the deep courses of torrents. I never knew what desert was till I came here. It is a very wonderful thing to see, and in the middle of it all, out of nothing, out of a little cold water— Springs up a garden. Such a garden.
0: But the desert wasn't the only thing she fell in love with. There was a young consular assistant who was assigned to escort her by the name of Henry Cadogan, who, like her, was in love with Persia, and he would take her on trips to historical ruins as well as read love poems to her from the famous 14th century mystical Sufi poet Hafiz. Unsurprisingly, the two fell in love and spent many happy months together in what she described as a blissful paradise. He soon proposed to her and she accepted, writing home to ask permission. But their hopes were dashed when her father Hugh wrote back some agonizing months later, denying his permission and crushing all hope for a wedding. You see, Hugh had made, as fathers do, several inquiries about the groom-to-be, and it was clear that he and his family were all but bankrupt. And worse, though he would never tell her, Hugh had discovered that Henry was an addicted gambler and carrying substantial debts back home. There was no way Hugh could sanction a marriage to such a poor prospect, given that neither of the young couple was in any position to run a household or raise a family without substantial support from Hugh, who was himself still on the payroll of his own tight-fisted father, the family patriarch Isaac. Worse still, The railroad and steel industries were taking a hammering from foreign competition, and shares in their companies had recently plummeted. Despite his well-known philanthropy, Hugh was concerned that the party would be soon over for him too. There was nothing for it but to have the heartbroken Gertrude return home, and this seems the only time in her life that she would willingly submit to the ultimatum of anyone. It perhaps shows how much faith she had in the judgment of her father that she would go against the force of desperate love not to disappoint him. Both Hugh and Florence felt her despair and encouraged her to write a book on her travels to Persia just to keep herself occupied. But less than a year from having returned home, news reached her that Henry had died from pneumonia, having fallen into a freezing stream while fishing. The shock of his death devastated her, and the grief over his loss would consume her for years afterward. Her travel book, Persian Pictures, was a dud, but Henry's death inspired her to resume her language lessons and to make a particular study of the poet Hafiz. The name Hafiz or Hafez was a name the poet earned while still a youth when he was reputed to have learned the Koran completely by heart. The word Hafiz means protector and in this sense, people who were able to memorise the entire holy book were considered protectors of its contents from corruption. The poet was born into a modest family in Shiraz, Persia, or modern Iran, around 1320. The Mongol conquests of the Middle East, particularly the sack of Baghdad in 1258, had a profound impact on the religious life of local Muslims. This event marked the end of the Islamic Golden Age, and had significant consequences for the political, cultural and religious landscape of the region. The Mongol invasions affected the balance of power between Sunni and Shia Muslims. The Abbasid Caliphate, a Sunni institution, was significantly weakened, and the Mongols, who were initially seen as potential allies by some Shia communities, eventually turned against various Islamic factions and heightened tensions between the two groups. The period following the Mongol invasions also saw cultural and religious syncretism as various local traditions and practices blended with Islamic beliefs. This syncretism, influenced by factors such as Mongol rule, Turkic migrations and Persian cultural influences, contributed to the rich diversity of Islamic religious expressions, particularly a resurgence of mysticism that was a feature of animist religious practices of the invading foreign armies. It also contributed to an increasing interest in mystical and spiritual aspects of Islam. Sufism, an Islamic mystic and ascetic movement, gained popularity as a response to the social and political chaos. Sufi orders provided a sense of community, spiritual guidance and solace during turbulent times. The emphasis on personal piety and direct connection with the divine resonated with many Muslims seeking a deeper, more personal experience of their faith. Tradition holds that while the young Hafiz was working as a delivery boy for a local bakery, he was dumbstruck by the sight of a beautiful noblewoman he almost ran into while on an errand. Falling head over heels, but knowing that his love could never be requited, he would sit in deep meditation on his love for her for some time, when it's claimed he was eventually visited by an angel, who in subsequent meditations helped him to transform his love for this lady into a mystical love of the divine and his future poetry would be heavily infused with metaphors of both physical and spiritual yearning. Hafiz would write much of his poetry in the form of Ghazals, an Arabic style of lyrical writing from the 7th century, which were particularly noted for their romantic themes of unrequited love, yearning and the pain of separation. He became a master of this style and incorporated a spiritual and religious dimension where every word had a possible mystical as well as romantic connotation that added multiple layers of interpretation. Hafiz was a celebrated poet even in his own time and became an enormous influence on writers throughout the Muslim world and even beyond, being loved by Western poets too such as Toro, Goethe, W.B. Yeats and Ralph Waldo Emerson, as well as the Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore. He has often been called the Persian Petrarch, given his dedication to romantic themes, and is considered a national treasure in Iran, where tens of thousands of visitors flock to his mausoleum in Shiraz each year to pay him homage. Because his poetry is so full of ambiguous meanings and layers of deep symbolism, translations into other languages have always been fraught with difficulty, with no two versions agreeing on even a single stanza. Gertrude, characteristically, threw herself into the task, and it may be that both her deep affection for the country and passionately tragic love affair with Henry gave her a perspective that others perhaps didn't have. Gertrude's biographer, Georgina Howell, believes that her much-praised translation of Hafiz was all the greater for the deep sense of grief she herself infused into the translation.
1: Ah, when he found it easy to depart, he left the harder pilgrimage to me. O camel driver, through the cordage, start for God's sake, help me lift my fallen load and pity be my comrade of the road.
2: Despite
0: the high praise she earned for her literary skills, she never saw herself as a particularly talented poet. An uncharacteristic self deprecation when in almost every other endeavour she was more than happy to blow her own trumpet, sometimes loudly, and to the condescension of others. Despite this, her poetic leanings and vivid imagery clearly show through in her many collected letters and journal entries, some of which you can find on the Heroes and Legends Documentary Channel website. In 1897, at the age of 29, she accompanied her brother Maurice on a world tour of his own, travelling to the United States, Mexico, Germany, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Egypt, China and even Japan. On a family trip to Europe in 1897, the bells made their way to the French alpine region of Desercrines, where she and her father Hugh did some hiking in the mountains. When he began to tire, he turned back, while Gertrude continued on with the guides, minus her outer skirt, to climb a minor peak of over three and a half thousand feet in the vicinity of La Meige, spending the night in a refuge and descending in triumph the next day to the astonishment of her family. Eyeing off the higher peak nearby, she swore to be back soon and take a crack at La Meige, too. By 1899, she was back in southern France. Accompanied by her brother Hugo, the La cousins, and dear friend, now Sir Valentine Cairol, none of whom could dissuade her from taking on La Meige. She and her guides set off, and when they were out of sight, she again removed her outer skirt and made her way up the rock face in her underpants. Now, it should be said that, at the time, crampons weren't yet invented, nor were carabiners, nor was nylon rope. What this meant was that climbing was a good deal more dangerous, and safety precautions far fewer. Nevertheless, she and her guides snaked their way up the lower slopes in the pre-dawn lantern light, with Gertrude sometimes hauling herself up in her awkward underwear and heeled boots, while at others being dragged up by heavy rope with the help of guides. By early the next morning, they made the 13,000-foot summit, she being the first woman to conquer la Meige. The climb down was even more perilous than the ascent, and when they finally made their way down and back to their lodgings, the locals let off fireworks in celebration. She slept the entire next day, but when she finally awoke, it was clear that the bug had bit her, because no sooner had she recovered than she arranged to go straight back out and tackle the highest summit of the southern French Alps bar des Ecrins, 500 feet higher, and a good deal more dangerous. Gertrude was nowhere near experienced enough to be considered up to the task, but she hustled her guides with her usual formidable attitude, and they eventually agreed to take her. This time, she took a pair of male trousers, which she wore under her skirt, and which again was whipped off the second they were out of public view. Despite nearly freezing to death, spraining her foot and shredding her pants to bits, 19 hours later, they descended back down to civilization, the worse for wear, but with another conquest and another first for women under her belt. By the 1900 climbing season, she had set her sights on Mont Blanc in Switzerland, which, despite having been climbed by other notable women as early as a century before, it was, at 15,771 feet, a considerable challenge for a relative novice, to whom climbing was just one hobby among many. She said that she had decided to climb it, because while she was taking breakfast at Lake Geneva one morning, Its lofty white peaks just seemed to be mocking her. Not only did she nail Mont Blanc, but in the same season, with the help of her now loyal guides, she also bagged another two peaks, Grepon and Drew. Gertrude Bell was now becoming quite the celebrity lady climber, and quickly set her sights on the Bernese Alps and its long, craggy line of savage peaks and high rock-faced towers. First, she conquered the Schreckhorn, and then decided to systematically tackle the multiple peaks of the Engelhörner Range, the jagged and brutal limestone mountains made famous by Arthur Conan Doyle, as the place where Sherlock Holmes plummeted into the misty abyss of the icy Reichenbach waterfall. Over the course of just two weeks, she summited seven separate peaks, two of them classified as first class, with one of them, Gertrud Spitzer, previously being unclimbed and named in her honour by Swiss authorities. Still hungry for greater successes, she was back in 1902 and with her ever-trusty guides pushed for the summit of the Finsterachorn, the highest peak in the region, at 14,022 feet. But first, they warmed up with an ascent of the as-yet-unconquered Schreckhorn-Lauterarhorn Traverse, where they ran into a German lady climber by the name of Helen Kunze, hoping for a world record of her own. But Gertrude was not about to concede the mountain to anyone, and scrambled to the summit, to rack another one up for herself feeling rather pleased the team now made preparations to summit the finsterarhorn which had been climbed before but never yet from its northeast face for good reason it was brutally inclined to almost 90 degrees at times and in some places was smooth as glass They set off and almost immediately the weather began to shift. They continued upwards, Gertrude losing her grip on several occasions and once almost plummeting to her death. Then they were hit by mist, then a storm, then hail, before it finally started to snow. They spent a night in pitch-black freezing conditions, just a couple of hundred feet from the summit and hanging on for dear life by rope against a violent wind when it was decided that it would be madness to continue.
1: As there was no further precaution possible, I enjoyed the extraordinary magnificence of the storm with a free mind and all the wonderful and terrible things that happen in high places. Gradually the night cleared and became beautiful and starry.
0: They turned back the next morning and 3,000 feet later spent yet another night in sleet and poor visibility on the glacier before emerging, dejected and beaten on the third day. Suffering from frostbite and hypothermia, it was a close call and despite their failure to summit, the descent in appalling weather conditions was hailed by other climbers as literally heroic. Now, at this time, we begin to see her great fascination for photography, with hundreds of images, many now becoming a precious record of places that few others had photographed till then. It was a hobby that quickly became a passion, and she regularly snapped images of everything from ancient ruins to portraits of local people going about their daily business. Gertrude had, by now, adopted a completely masculine climbing outfit, which she would change into once on the mountain, and this scandalous and unladylike masculine uniform was nevertheless to become a fashion template for every other lady mountaineer over the ensuing decades. In 1904, she again returned to Switzerland, to conquer one last mountain, the Matterhorn. It was one of the most technically difficult, with the highest fatality rate of any European mountain. Naturally, she was going to see for herself. And though it was as gruelling a climb as she expected, with sheer verticals, rope climbing, and dangerous rockfalls, she bagged this one as well, with mountaineers commenting for years afterward how incredibly strong and agile she was, not to mention tough and courageous. In between climbing seasons, Gertrude often took holidays in exotic places. Italy, the Croatian coast, India, China and Japan, taking hundreds of photographs, now housed in an excellent collection at the University of Newcastle. In 1899, Nina and Charlotte Roche, childhood friends whom she had previously met up with while in Tehran, and Nina now married to German diplomat Friedrich Rosen, invited her to visit them at their new consular post in Jerusalem for Christmas. Ever since the death of her one-time fiancé, Henry Cadogan, Gertrude had felt a yearning to return to the east, and this invitation was just the ticket. She was now thirty-one years old and in the peak of fitness during these her climbing years, so, with her father's permission, she made her way to Jerusalem, where she booked a room at the Jerusalem Hotel, just a few minutes' walk from the German consulate. She immediately arranged to begin intensive Arabic and Hebrew lessons, which she found rather challenging, and set about on foot with her new Kodak film camera, a departure from the glass plates of past trips to photograph the usual tourist sites and ordinary people going about their business. At the time, Jerusalem was part of the Ottoman Empire, having been invaded by one power after another for over two millennia, after the destruction of the Jewish state of Judea by the Romans in 70 AD. Byzantines, Sasanid Persians, several Islamic Caliphates, both Sunni and Shia, Seljuk Turks, European Crusaders, Ayubids, Mamluks, and eventually the Ottoman Turks, all captured the city and its surrounding territory in their turn, leaving both cultural as well as political legacies. It was a cosmopolitan city, ostensibly Arabic and Muslim by this time, but nonetheless populated by dozens of minorities, including those Jews who had never left, referred to as the Old Yishuv, as well as Christian Europeans of many denominations, Armenians, Greeks, Persians, Assyrians, Egyptians, and many others, including the Ottoman Turks, who all engaged in widespread and lively commerce throughout the region. She would often go on day trips with the Rosans and their children, who would take her sightseeing in the countryside, visiting many ancient ruins. On one occasion they rode out to the shore of the Dead Sea, a body of water so salty that you float effortlessly in its high buoyancy and whose water feels like an almost oily film on your skin until it dries, caking you in itchy flakes of salt. Heaven help you if you dip your face in it or a drop ends up in your eye. It was here that she took one of her most iconic photographs of Nina Rosen in her swimming gown and of the Rosen children playing at the shoreline. These excursions fired her imagination to explore further afield, so she purchased a horse, which she scandalously rode like a man, not side saddle. In March of 1900, she decided to spend a few days riding south along the Dead Sea to the hills of ancient Moab, in today's Jordan and hired her first caravan of three companions, a cook and two mule drivers, none of whom spoke English, which pushed her Arabic practice to the max, much to their amusement. After several days' travel, they had reached the old crusader fortress at Kerak. During regular letters home, titled From My Tent, she described vast colourful fields of flowers, Bedouin black-tented camps and beautiful unveiled peasant women with long blue gowns, tattooed faces and plaited hair looping down each side of their face. Gertrude was exhilarated by both the extraordinary sights and the sheer freedom she experienced in these vast open spaces, much as she felt on the sides of mountains during her alpine adventures. She'd been in the saddle for eight days already, and noted that the maps she had brought along with her were full of inaccuracies, that she now amended with annotations and fresh measurements. She then decided, on a whim, to push south into Petra, the ancient caravan trading hub famous for its beautiful architectural facades carved into lonely sheer red cliffs.
1: the charming façade, the most exquisite proportions. But time has worn them, and the weather has stained the rock with exquisite colours.
0: It wasn't long before she was intercepted by a Turkish patrol who demanded her papers. It seems that it was necessary to procure permission to venture out into the more remote areas, so she bluffed her way through it and requested an escort to the local governor, who she said would vouch for her, rightly guessing that the officer was unable to alter his patrol route. Instead, he continued on his way, but assigned her a soldier to act as a safety escort, which was just as well, because they soon found themselves completely surrounded by warriors of the fierce Benisakar tribe, who would have robbed and shot the lot of them had the Turkish soldier not been among them. There were three lessons she learned that day. Know exactly into whose territory you are riding into. Go straight to the tent of the sheik in charge and pay your respects, and if in doubt, bluff and bluff hard. So it was that, having been manhandled by what she thought were bandits, she bluffed her way into the sheik's tent and then apologised and grovelled her way out of trouble. But the desert warlord was astonished at the sight of her and guessed that she must be the daughter of a powerful ruler to be allowed to travel so indiscreetly on her own, without protection or a chaperone. So he treated her with the greatest courtesy and respect. Assigning her one of his own men to guarantee her safe passage back. And this was yet another lesson learned. A chaperone from the ruling local tribe is an imperative if you want to avoid having your head shot off for trespassing. Raiding and banditry was a perfectly normal occupation in the desert, and the costume of your guide, seen at a distance, can mean the difference between life and death. These close calls far from intimidated her, as she now filled her letters back home with exciting tales of adventure, which caused her parents both concern at her risk-taking, but relief that she was finally happy. Anyway, after a hundred and thirty-five miles, and 18 days on horseback, she finally rode back into Jerusalem, sunburned, sore, and dusty. But she was now a woman on a mission, to see as much of the Levant as she possibly could, and fill in the many blanks and map inaccuracies as she could find. You see, ever since the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, land caravans were now considered obsolete. Steamships could carry huge amounts of cargo, quickly and efficiently, from the Mediterranean into the Indian Ocean, safely and cheaply. Consequently, few Europeans, outside of archaeologists and Orientalist scholars, took any interest in the vast swathes of desert. That was the home of nomadic herdsmen and warring Muslim tribes. Soon after her return, the Rosens had planned another multi-day excursion, this time north to Bosra, which had an interesting Roman ruin with an avenue of colonnades. Having reached the site and enjoyed some local sightseeing, the Rosens packed for home, but Gertrude upon hearing stories about the fierce Druze tribes in the mountains beyond from her chief muleteer, decided to push on and investigate for herself who these people were, to the great consternation of her friends who couldn't prevail upon her to change her mind. Now, the Druze are a religious and ethnic minority with a distinct cultural and religious identity. Their origins can be traced back to the 11th century when a prominent Ismaili Muslim scholar, Hamza ibn Ali ibn Ahmad, initiated a religious movement in Cairo, Egypt, that eventually evolved into the distinctly Druze faith. The word Druze is thought to derive from the name of one of their early preachers, Muhammad bin Ismail Nashtakin ad-Darazi. Darazi was no angel, however, and was assassinated after he caused riots in Cairo. Some scholars think it more likely that the name is instead a derivation of the Arab word Darisa, one who studies or perhaps even the Persian Daraz, which means bliss. The Druze refer to themselves simply as the monotheists. al Muwahhidun. The core beliefs of the Druze are deeply esoteric and secretive, with the inner teachings reserved for a select group of initiates. On the other hand, exoteric aspects of their faith include elements from Islam, Christianity and other monotheistic religions, as well as ancient Greek Neoplatonism, Pythagoreanism and even religions further afield, such as Zoroastrianism and Hindu Buddhism. The Druze are Unitarians, that is to say, they believe in the oneness of God and the prophethood of various religious figures, including Noah. Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, but with a unique interpretation of their roles. They also have a core belief in reincarnation. The central religious text for the Druze is the Epistles of Wisdom, a collection of writings attributed to Hamza ibn Ali. The Druze community places a strong emphasis on community solidarity and maintaining their distinct identity. They have historically lived in mountainous regions, fostering a sense of close-knit communal living, and it is forbidden to marry outside of their social group. Nor can one convert to their religion. Despite their fierce independence, the Druze have always been a minority in the countries they are found, and strive to maintain peaceful relations with surrounding communities particularly Christians and Jews. Perhaps because of their vulnerable position, today's population, numbering less than a million, they are known for their loyalty to the countries in which they reside, and their service in the armed forces of nations like Lebanon and Israel is notable, though they have often been the subject of persecution, particularly by fundamentalist Muslims. Under the Ottomans, they nevertheless managed to negotiate a significant degree of autonomy, particularly in the late 19th century, as Ottoman power began fading. But they were still viewed with suspicion by the authorities who feared them as much as they despised them, and by the time of Gertrude's visit in 1900, there was such strain between the government and the Druze leadership that the mountains had become a hotbed of discontent and simmering rebellion. It's not surprising, then, that having applied for a permit to the Ottoman authorities to visit the region, she was flat-out denied, even when using the excuse of travelling through for the purposes of visiting a Roman archaeological site at Salkard. Just to make sure she got the point... That evening she was visited at her campsite by government officials who warned her to clear out the next morning. So when the visitors departed, she had her men, the same crew she had used the previous trip, pack the entire camp and they hurriedly departed in the middle of the night to avoid the inevitable official escort that was sure to show up the next morning. But far from going home, they headed south bypassing Salkad and circling wide, out of sight of government checkpoints and then up into the mountain villages and straight for the town in which the Druze sheik lived. It was a tactic that would ensure success in many of her future adventures. Far from hostile, the Druze leadership greeted her with friendliness and generosity and her direct insistence on paying her respects to him established her as a person of some importance. The elderly sheikh, Yahya Beg, was no friend of the Ottomans, having just been released from five years in a Turkish jail. He was impressed by her spirit and had his men, whom she described in her letters home as tall and very handsome, escort her to all the archaeological ruins in the area and onwards to the end of his territory. She now continued north for a resupply in Damascus, before her small caravan now carried on through dry and dusty conditions to the ruins of Palmyra. Palmyra was an oasis city that had existed since Neolithic times, and for most of its life served as a hub for caravans of merchants on one of the many silk roads to the east. By Roman times it was quite a prosperous city and they too left their mark here with the many colonnades and elegant buildings erected as a symbol of their authority. But in the 260s AD the powerful Queen Zenobia whose husband had managed to subjugate almost the entire Levant from the Egyptian border all the way to Anatolia took power after his assassination and expanded the Palmyrene Empire even further, annexing Egypt and declaring her empire's secession from the Roman orbit. Obviously, the Roman Emperor Aurelian wasn't about to tolerate this insult to his authority, so he marched his troops on Zenobia's capital and after ferocious fighting, Palmyra fell to the Roman army in 272 AD. The queen was captured and sent to Rome in chains, where she died in exile two years later. Queen Zenobia was said to have been a tolerant and just ruler over her multi ethnic and diverse empire, with some scholars even suggesting that her ethnicity was Jewish. She certainly made several edicts protecting Jewish temples in her domains. But her tolerance extended to all religions, where she ordered repairs of derelict Egyptian temples too, notably the Colossi of Memnon. She was one tough lady, so it's no surprise that Gertrude Bell, another tough woman taking on a man's world, was keen to visit the capital of this once mighty empire. Having explored the archaeological site and rested the caravan, the party headed back for Damascus along the main tourist highway, where she soon ran into a coach with several British women she had met back at the German embassy. Seeing her dishevelled, dusty and riding astride like a man must have been quite the shock, but they sat together for tea and biscuits, and then she carried on with the caravan no doubt giving the ladies plenty to gossip about. Soon enough they set up camp and observed the arrival nearby of a party of Hacine tribesmen pitching their black tents for the evening. Their sheik, a young and handsome man, paid her a visit and she returned the courtesy a little later, sitting nearby on cushions where she was treated to a performance on the one-stringed instrument called a rebab, accompanied by the recitation of lyrics to ancient Arabic poems. At length she made her exit, but when she returned to her campsite, her companions excitedly warned her that she had committed an offence by leaving so soon, as the sheik had killed a lamb in her honour and was cooking it up for supper. To leave while a meal was being prepared was just bad form and moreover it was appropriate for her to offer a gift in return and not just any old thing. A sheik was nobility after all and for any aristocrat of the desert only a horse or firearm would do. So she hurriedly took a pistol from her pack wrapped it in one of her silk scarves and sent it across to the sheikh as a gesture of goodwill. Fortunately, she was soon invited to return, and spent the next few hours before dinner listening to the desert gossip, as other tribesmen also entered the tent to pay their respects. By now, her grasp of Arabic was competent enough to converse and get the gist of which tribe was at war with which who owed someone sheep, camels or horses, and who was going where to trade what animals. She was quickly becoming acquainted with the many various ethnic and tribal groups, writing down everything she was learning in detailed diary entries as she observed their courtesies, gestures and customs while dining with them as an equal. The feast over, and diplomatic insult averted, she continued onward back to Damascus the next morning, pondering the many lessons on desert etiquette she had learned, and then on back to Jerusalem, excitedly sharing these stories with the astonished Rosens. She soon returned to England and resumed her mountain climbs, but returning to Haifa in 1902 for several months of intensive lessons in Arabic and Persian. In 1905, she would again return to Jerusalem, and this time was geared up for an even longer expedition, hiring several new muleteers who she found to be sulky and quarrelsome. She wound her way north again, but this time avoiding the Turkish authorities at Bosra altogether, often travelling on side trails. One memorable event she recorded, while in the Druze Mountains' backcountry, was a fierce storm that had completely washed out her tent, such that they all scrambled for shelter in a nearby cave. They were soon joined by several Bedouin of the Beni Sakar tribe, along with a couple from the Sherarat tribe Whose own tents were similarly washed out, and they all huddled together, soaking wet, when one of the Beni Sakar, the same tribe that had menaced her during her Petra trip, recognized her and exclaimed, Mashallah, Bint Arab, which she translated in her journal, As God wills it, the daughter of the desert. She had by now become quite the rural celebrity, and soon enough, Other local Arabs, referring to her as the Desert Queen, came along to pay their respects. Among them was a kinsman of the Sheikh of the Dajah tribe, who insisted on being her guide, or refik, during her traverse through the Druze territory. As the storm raged on around them, she listened to the banter of the huddled and drenched nomads, gradually coming to unravel the complex political interrelationships and characteristics of various local tribes, what the local alliances were, who had the best livestock, who had perpetrated the best raids, and speculation about revenge attacks. A raid, or gazu, was an integral component of the Bedouin warrior culture. Raiding other tribes to rustle their livestock and kidnap their women was part of their folklore since time immemorial, as were the inevitable reprisals and blood feuds that occasionally led to massacres of entire clans. Occasionally, matters were settled by a marriage dowry or blood money, but the Druze hinterlands were essentially the Arab equivalent of the Wild West, where fierce tribesmen did as they pleased, and the Turkish authorities, thin on the ground, reluctant to get involved. With the weather clearing, her guide escorted her up the mountains back into Druze territory, while her cave companions also went their own way. This time, having completely bypassed the authorities at Bosra, she finally got to see the ruins at Salkad, but the sheikh of the Dajja, who had now extended his own protection over her, conveyed the sad news that the Sakur tribe and their allies the Hawetat had recently raided their Beni Hassan and Druze allies, killed several people and rustled thousands of sheep and cattle, making off with dozens of tents and the harems of women within. Naively disappointed at missing the action, she wrote in her diary, I
1: could not help regretting a little. The Gazu had not waited until today that we might have seen it.
0: Nevertheless, the following night, she heard shouting and gunfire outside her tent and cautiously emerged to see a bonfire with men and boys, brandishing swords and dancing around the fire, singing fierce songs of bravery and vengeance. She recorded in her diary,
1: Tomorrow the Druze are going forth with two thousand horsemen to recapture their flocks and to kill every man, woman and child of the Sakir that they may come across. As I stood there watching, several came up to me, saluted, and said, Upon thee be peace. The English and the Druze are one. I said, Praise be to God. We too are a fighting race. If you had listened to their song, you would know that the finest thing in the world is to go out and kill your enemy.
2: Back at the Dajar
0: Sheikh's tent, as his honoured guest, she was surprised at his broad knowledge of current affairs and even English politics, to her delight, heartily commending the Gladstonian liberal policy of free trade. The Sheik, in turn, was equally astonished when she produced a copy of the Mu'allakat, a collection of pre-Islamic poems that some scholars consider the most sophisticated and elegant poetry in the entire Arabic corpus. The Sheik and his companions gathered round as they discussed and explained the meanings of archaic words that Gertrude was struggling with which only served to raise her esteem even higher in their eyes. She never did hear what happened during the dawn raid of the Revenge Gazoo, but she pushed on northwards anyway to Damascus, and they were soon hit by a blizzard which blanketed the entire region in snow. The going was slow and arduous, yet by the time they got to Damascus, it was clear that news travelled fast. She became aware of a police agent tailing her, and by the time she got to Homs, she was mobbed by crowds of onlookers and barely managed to take a stroll through its famous bazaar before hiring some Turkish soldiers to keep the crowds back. Despite her small caravan, it was clear that she was no ordinary traveller, While she wore a protective masculine coat, she nevertheless wore a dress and wide-brimmed hat, though it was often topped with a local kefir, and when presenting herself before a sheik, made sure of always dressing in the finest silk evening gowns, with furs, a parasol and lavender perfume that lingered long after she had left. It was clear to her that travelling in style, with silver cutlery and candlesticks, crystal glassware, wedgewood ceramics, and even a portable bath, was as much an ostentatious safety guarantee as it was a personal luxury, because lacking a chaperone and depending on the protection of regional warlords, she needed to impress upon everyone that she was a VIP not to be trifled with. If she were molested in any way, her father would bring the wrath of the British Empire upon the perpetrators. The bluff more or less paid off consistently, with tribal sheiks and Turkish governors alike anticipating her arrival and even sending escorts to guide her safely from one territory to another. They continued northwards, visiting archaeological sites at Baalbek, Homs and Aleppo, then Antioch and Iskenderum, the city founded by Alexander the Great, following his nearby victory over the Persian king Darius III at the Battle of Issus in 333 BC. Travelling still further north in terrible weather along the Turkish coast to Adana, where her frustration with the increasingly indolent crew caused her to hire a new cook, an Armenian Christian from Aleppo by the name of Fatuch, who was, in time, to become her most devoted servant and accompanied her on all her future expeditions. Fatuch took charge of the other employees and quickly whipped them into shape, to Gertrude's great relief and gratitude. They pushed on further still into Anatolia, visiting Hittite, Greek, Roman and early Christian sites on their way northwards toward Constantinople, or as it's now known, Istanbul. The last couple of hundred miles, she disbanded the caravan, sending the animals and crew back home after paying them off, having been on the road for over four months and in the saddle, for at least ten hours a day. Returning home by ship, she spent the next year working on a book of her travels thus far, called Syria, the Desert and the Sown, which she published in 1907 to positive reviews and good sales. It was now time for a new adventure, so this time she returned to Turkey, disembarking at Smyrna, or modern Izmir. On this journey, she decided to focus all her attention on visiting ancient ruins and learning the Turkish language. She had been fascinated by archaeology ever since a family holiday in Greece, where one of her Oxford companions introduced her to her brother, the classical scholar David Hogarth, who was excavating at a site at Melos and who generously invited Gertrude to assist him. Dr Hogarth would become an instrumental figure in her future, but in the intervening years, he provided her with some invaluable contacts with whom to collaborate, such that in the early 1900s, while she was in the peak of her climbing years, she would also spend a few weeks at Greek archaeological sites, assisting other scientists in the grunt work of site measurement, digging and cataloguing their finds. One of these scholars was Professor Salomon Reinbach, editor of the French Archaeological Review, as well as the director of the Saint-Germain Museum in Paris. Reinbach was to give her a crash course in ancient history. He also gave her letters of introduction that opened the doors of every museum and library in Paris, as well as access to digs throughout the Levant. Another invaluable contact she made was eminent British archaeologist and biblical scholar Sir William Mitchell Ramsay, who had long studied ancient Greek sites along the Turkish Mediterranean, and was now intent on excavating the ruins of a Byzantine fortress and church complex at Binbirkilise. Running into him by chance at her hotel and producing a copy of his own book from her saddlebag, she offered to personally fund the dig, paying for dozens of local labourers to aid in the excavations. Ramsay, grateful for the cash, became very fond of her and even credited her discovery of an inscribed stone slab as being critical in the dating of the entire site. They spent the next several months working closely together, and the result was a jointly published book, A Thousand and One Churches, which established her name as a serious, though as yet amateur, archaeologist. It was in nearby Konya, where she was staying, where she would meet the second great love of her life, though her introduction to Major Charles Doty Wiley was fairly low-key. Dick, as he was called by his friends, was already a war hero. A Sandhurst graduate and officer in the Welsh Fusiliers, he had won medals for valour during the East African Campaign of 1898, had fought at Tientsin during the Chinese Boxer Rebellion, led a cavalry unit in India, a camel unit in Somalia and had been badly wounded in the Boer War. His chest full of medals belied a quiet and modest persona, though he was every bit the tall, lean and handsome army officer. He had now been assigned as vice-consul to the British mission in Konya, and was every bit as fascinated with Islamic culture as Gertrude though their personalities couldn't have been more opposite, she being a vivacious, talkative and lively celebrity figure. Doty Wiley had recently married Lillian Adams Wiley, the widow of Lieutenant Henry Adams Wiley, whom she had insisted, like her now new husband, must take on her maiden name of Wiley at their marriage. That tells you a lot. Anyway, Major Dick and his new missus had recently returned from a holiday to the Near East, visiting the exotic city of Baghdad and the ruins of ancient Babylon, with his new wife finding the whole thing rather tedious and unpleasantly foreign. Back in Konya, Lillian instead occupied herself entertaining diplomatic guests with equally tedious small talk, at tea parties in the consular gardens. But Gertrude's now regular visits to the building quickly caused her instead to become the centre of attention as visitors gathered round to hear her less-than-ladylike tales of danger and high adventure in the Syrian desert. From now on, Gertrude would regularly find herself in such settings and it's quite telling that she often found these officers' wives dull and bordering on the idiotic. You could always tell if she didn't like someone when she referred to them in letters home as quite a pleasant little wife. Ouch! Sharing a fascination for Islamic culture, Dick and Gertrude would occasionally take a quiet stroll through the garden where he would inquire about her time in Persia with her uncle and aunt. Tellingly, Gertrude would recite Persian poetry, verbatim, both from her translations of the love poems of Hafiz, as well as those of his Sufi predecessor, the mystic Rumi, whom she also later studied in great detail, and whose mausoleum was actually in Konya. Uh Uh-oh. Suffice it to say that a woman doesn't usually recite passionate love poems by heart to a bloke she's just met without at least some small personal agenda, the hussy. Anyway, as Gertrude and Sir Ramsay continued with their excavations at the Byzantine ruins, her faithful assistant Fatuch cracked his head on a stone lintel while hurrying excitedly out of a pit. Over the coming days, he became so deliriously unwell that Gertrude telegraphed the British ambassador in Istanbul as well as the Grand Vizier and they arranged for Fatouk to be treated by specialists at the best hospital available. Gertrude never did anything by halves and she was always fiercely loyal to the people she respected. Having ensured he received the best possible care, she returned to England and was soon joined at the family home by Sir Ramsay, where they worked on their new book together. In the meantime, she was also introduced to Edward Reeves, an eminent astronomer and cartographer at the Royal Geographical Society. Gertrude was keen to upskill and learn all that was needed to accurately survey, chart and record her expeditions, and Reeves once commented that he had never had a more serious or talented student. In 1909, armed with new cameras, surveying equipment and boxes packed with the latest pistols, Zeiss binoculars, silver cigarette cases and rolls of French fabric, she found herself once again in Syria, this time in her servant Fatouk's home in Aleppo. He was now well-mended and ready to accompany her on what would be the longest of her many journeys. In February, after a comprehensive photography and architectural tour of the city, they set off along the northern desert route towards the Euphrates River. Being back in the saddle and off to new adventures in Arabia, she reflected on her growing love for the people and culture of the Middle East.
1: Some day, I hope the East will be strong again and develop its own civilization, not imitate ours. And then perhaps it will teach us a few things we once learned from it, and have now forgotten to our great loss.
0: Approaching the ruins of the ancient Hittite and then Assyrian city of Karchemish, a city mentioned in the Bible as the site of a significant battle between the Egyptians and Babylonians in 606 BC, she surveyed the ruins, made drawings, and took dozens of photographs before continuing to the next site a little further downstream. The Euphrates once formed the boundary of the Greco-Roman civilizations of Europe and the Parthian kingdoms of Central Asia, and was littered with hundreds of both Greek and Roman sites, which themselves often lay upon the ruins of Hittite, Babylonian, and other civilizations that preceded them now all crumbling and covered by the shifting sands of the desert. Her journal, and the book that emerged from it, From Amurath to Amurath, goes into extraordinary detail, not only of her painstaking investigation and cataloguing of places, names and features, but also of the human dimension of those Arabs currently living in the often harsh conditions adjacent to the river. Her account is rich in anecdotes and conversations with minor and major chieftains, peasants, travellers and scoundrels, having countless suppers with local tribal leaders, discussing the history of their clans, their struggles and their hopes for the future. During many of these discussions, She had by now adopted the habit of smoking the communal argile, and even her own writing had begun to take on the many peculiarities of expression and religious sentiment that infuses the Arabic language. Visit the Heroes and Legends website for a free downloadable copy of some of these invaluable resources.
2: As mentioned
0: previously, It was customary to negotiate the services of a local refic, or guide, in order to safely pass through the many unmarked domains in the desert, to avoid being shot for trespassing. Her fair and generous dealings and genuine curiosity endeared her to sheiks and commoners alike, who frequently allowed her to take their photographs and would often send riders out to escort her safely to their campsites. As a woman, she was often granted the extraordinarily rare privilege of access to their harems, noting the diverse and sometimes heartbreaking stories of women who had reconciled themselves to a life with the men who had, in many cases, killed their previous husbands and abducted them in a violent raid. Gertrude's reporting of this lifestyle and its rugged people, unchanged for thousands of years, carried a mixture of both pity and naive romanticism, something that future biographers would criticise. But life on the road, even for her, was fraught with skullduggery, and she was no sucker either, so when guides occasionally tried to double-cross her or renegotiate terms, she would stand her ground and invoke all manner of consequences, both real and superstitious, which usually did the trick. Driving a hard bargain is part and parcel of Arab culture and trade, such that there is no honour in simple capitulation to demands. Haggling for price is always the order of the day, and she soon got the hang of it. The result was that her fame continued to grow the further she travelled. Our desert queen could hustle with the best of them. Her survey work continued for hundreds of miles along the Euphrates River, all the way to Karbala, again correcting previously inaccurate map locations and recording in meticulous detail the many tribal interrelationships that extended among both the Bedouin nomads and the settled populations. She also used cutting-edge, wide-angle landscape shots she learned at the Royal Geographic Society to add perspective and an additional topographical detail that greatly aided scholars back home for decades after.
1: To travel in the desert is in one respect curiously akin to travelling on the sea. It gives you no premonition of the changed environment to which the days of journeying are conducting you. What has become of the march of time? Dawn leads to noon, noon to sunset, sunset to the night, but night breaks into a dawn indistinguishable from the last. The same sky above, the same sea on every side, the same planks beneath your feet. Is it indeed another day, or is it yesterday lived over again? Then on a sudden you touch the land and find that that recurring day has carried you half round the globe. So it is in the desert.
0: Coming across a beautiful old citadel at Uqaydir, an abandoned Abbasid fortress dated from the 8th century that was not on any map she knew, She surveyed, photographed and drew plans of it with great excitement, as though she had made a -a once-in-a-lifetime discovery, eventually publishing the work in both journal and book form, though she was later to learn, disappointingly, that a German team had beaten her to the punch, having explored and published their own book on the citadel just a few months before her. She continued through the ruins of ancient Babylon, a hive of activity with several teams of German archaeologists working on Nebuchadnezzar's palace, in whose company she spent wonderful days photographing their work and talking long into the night about all things Babylon. All of a sudden, news reached them of significant social unrest in the south of the country, so she decided to avoid travelling south and turned north for Baghdad instead. They made their way through the marshlands and the ancient Sassanid capital of Tessiphon, whose breathtakingly beautiful vaulted palace ceiling was all that remained of a once glorious citadel. Further along they reached the mighty Tigris River and on to Baghdad, a bustling multi-ethnic metropolis home to Muslims, Jews and Christians alike. At the British consulate, she now learned of increasing dangers in the north too, where a number of tribal sheiks in the Mosul province were in a state of revolt, with Turkish forces struggling to contain them. Much of the strife was the result of ongoing Ottoman neglect and a culture of corruption at the hands of Istanbul-appointed judges and governors whose only interest was in the collection of tax revenue to be sent back to Turkey. You see, civil servants were paid poorly and consequently depended on bribes and kickbacks. In any kind of civil dispute, the richest plaintiff won well over 90% of litigations. While officials bled the budget dry on personal aggrandisement at the expense of public works. Irrigation works and public facilities desperately lacked maintenance and many were in a state of complete disrepair, leading to persistent crop failures and starvation in many quarters. Even mosques, schools and libraries were being stripped of funding, while officials diverted those funds to pet projects of their own. After centuries of Ottoman rule, things had reached rock bottom, and to say that the natives were getting restless would be an understatement. Complicating it all was a complete lack of a unified opposition, as tribal factions each acted independently, heightening raids on each other as much as their Turkish overlords. When the Ottoman Empire was at its peak, There was enough cash and troops to keep the peace throughout its vast multi-ethnic empire. But by the late 19th century, its bureaucracy had become so corrupt and bloated that it had earned itself the nickname of Sick Man of Europe. And nowhere was this societal neglect more obvious than in the land of the Arabs and its once shining beacons of culture and sophistication such as the city of Baghdad, now little more than a second-rate backwater. One time she was accompanied by a local police officer assigned to escort her. Striking up a conversation, it wasn't long before he had a whinge about his circumstances.
1: God is great, said the constable, but it has been a year of ruin for poor men. We have not known where to look for food for our horses, and more than that, I have received no pay for six months. Please, God, the new government will give you your pay, I said. Please, God, he answered. But when it comes the officers, they consume everything. Offend him. Once I travelled with an officer who received 18 Turkish pounds a month, voila, and my pay was 100 piastres a month. Yet whenever he drank coffee, he left me to defray the expense. Where is eighteen pounds, and where a hundred piastres?
0: She would hear such stories of poverty and exploitation wherever she stayed. Journeying onward through the ruins of the once mighty Assyrian fortresses at the biblical Kala and then Nineveh, they eventually reached the outskirts of Mosul. Hearing cannon fire, they hesitated till armed horsemen rode out of the city towards them, and tense inquiries and delicate questioning now established that the local governor had been overthrown, and that a new sultan had taken power. It was a volatile situation. In conversation with several nervous local dignitaries, it was clear that these events appeared to be tied to the recent revolution in Turkey, known to us today as the Young Turks Revolution, which occurred in 1908. You see, in 1876, the Turkish Parliament had passed a progressive set of reforms, including a constitution, which brought its monarchy's role in line with that of other European powers. But the king, Abdul Hamid II, was eventually convinced to scrap these changes, dissolve Parliament and declare absolute rule once again, just like the good old days. Consequently, this hard-line crackdown caused simmering tension throughout the Ottoman Empire, including the failure of its Balkan Wars and ongoing neglect in Mesopotamia, with the entire empire now on the brink of rebellion. Political dissenters within Istanbul were exiled, but when they managed to convince several generals to support them, a military coup ensued, the king was deposed, and the constitutionalists, nicknamed the Young Turks, returned to power. Now, you'd think that the situation would have improved following the restoration of the constitution, and that the parliament would continue with its progressive reforms. Unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. As so often happens in revolutions, the agenda can change so much that the new regime becomes as repressive as the old one, and frequently more so. The revolutionaries wanted a stronger centralised government and an emphasis on nationalism. Part of this strategy included a program of Turkification, which was implemented throughout the entire empire. The result was ethnic unrest, countered by state repression. To make matters worse, the very next year, in April of 1909, disgruntled loyalists once again convinced the king to stage a coup, again dissolving parliament and taking absolute power. He was supported by factions of Islamic hardliners, all calling for the abolition of their Napoleonic style of constitution and a reversion to Sharia law. These now formed large mobs of armed extremists who took out their frustration on ethnic and religious minorities, the most well-known being the widespread murder of Armenian Christians. It was during one of these riots that Dick Doty Wiley, now a lieutenant-colonel at the British Consulate in Konya took the unprecedented step of riding urgently to the local governor and pleading with him to lend him an escort of a few of his soldiers, including a bugler. They all together now galloped out into the middle of the riot and dispersed the armed mob, who had already murdered hundreds of people. Dick's reckless bravery effectively ended the entire massacre. For his trouble, he received a gunshot to the arm and several medals for valour from both the British and Turkish governments. Fortunately, the royalist rebellion was swiftly put down and the king, forced to abdicate once more, now in favour of his brother. For a time, the killings would cease. Gertrude had, meanwhile, been making her way through North Christian Assyrian territory, as well as the Yazidi homelands, sharing in their hospitality and learning much about their cultural and religious uniqueness. She made her way into the Tigris uplands of the Tur Abdin in modern Turkey, climbing Mount Judy, which is thought by some to be the true resting place of Noah's Ark. The region is famous for its many Byzantine churches, monasteries and fortress ruins, and she applied her now well-mastered surveying and photographic skills to catalogue many of them, which she would feature in a future book. Deeper still into Anatolia, more and more stories began to filter in of atrocities conducted against Christians during the turmoil of the royalist counter-coup. But in this region, there was such a drought that the local village chiefs called for both Christian and Muslim peasants to unite in prayer for rain, which seemed to halt the riots, at least here, especially when their prayers were soon answered. She now caught the train back to Istanbul and thence home to England, where she became aware and increasingly concerned, about the growing women's suffrage movement, not only writing of her disapproval, but actually lobbying against it by contacting various opposition groups and even holding meetings. It might seem strange to us that such an independent, capable and clearly unintimidated woman who moved through a dangerous and otherwise restrictive man's world without the slightest hesitation, would actively lobby against women's suffrage. Many commentators have certainly viewed this contradiction as a blight on her otherwise inspiring career. Indeed, she has drawn substantial condemnation from many feminist quarters. Georgina Howell, in her excellent biography, suggests that Gertrude's opposition to women's liberation stems from her heartbreaking research with her stepmother Florence, interviewing the wives of foundry workers in Middlesbrough. Howell suggests that their assessment of the plight of these housewives was such that they were already stretched to the maximum, just keeping their families going, and that expecting them to participate in the workforce, learn a trade, or gain a broader education would be catastrophic to the integrity of the family unit. The prevailing view at the time was that the eligibility to vote in elections depended on a solid education. How would poor housewives, or for that matter, illiterate male labourers, be expected to understand, let alone participate in debates on issues of national significance, such as free trade? the Reform Bill, Home Rule for Ireland or Penal Reform. Matters such as health care, social services and poverty relief were typically dealt with at the level of local government, where middle-class women with ample leisure time were already deeply involved in voluntary work. Gertrude viewed the militant suffragettes as well-to-do middle-class troublemakers disconnected from the realities facing poor women and whose demands were likely to cause irreparable damage to the fabric of society. It was no small irony then that her now frequent participation at political dinners, where her opinion on all things Middle Eastern, was taken by the many diplomats and politicians that visited her with the utmost seriousness. Critics have occasionally condemned her as exercising her own privilege while denying opportunities for other women to attain the same. A fair enough point. Anyway, in between all her lobbying, luncheoning and writing, she began planning another trip to continue her study of the fortress of Ukhaidir as well as Byzantine architecture in the Turkish highlands. Gertrude had also been in correspondence with the Doty Wileys, and was soon aware of Dick's heroic action in preventing the massacre of Armenian Christians, and it was becoming clear that she was developing a serious crush on him. By 1911, she once again found herself in Damascus, and set off for the Euphrates, but this time crossing directly over the huge expanse of desert. Her diary records awful conditions of freezing cold, snow, howling tempests, hailstorms and even flooding that we don't normally associate with the arid imagery of deserts. But by now, at the age of 43, she was quite the tough and seasoned traveller, rarely despairing in her journal entries and always full of fascination and excitement. Once again, travelling south along the Euphrates, her regular conversations with both dignitaries and ordinary people about the political and economic crisis of Ottoman mismanagement, especially among the Shia population, made it clear that something needed to change to improve the lot of all Arabs throughout the Middle East and to stabilize the turbulent tribal warfare and banditry that had begun to escalate throughout the entire region. More than one senior cleric had mentioned to her that, for the Arabs to ever be unified enough to govern themselves, it would need to be under the leadership of the House of Quraysh, specifically the Sharif of Mecca. This revelation was to make a significant impression on her future thinking, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Travelling back north along the Tigris, she detoured to yet more ancient sites along the border of modern Iran, before heading back across the rivers onto Assyrian ruins at Hatra and Ashur. More desert challenges and again into the Turkish highlands, where she was the guest of dozens of Turkish notables, as well as local Christian bishops who helped her in the research of ruined monasteries. Winding her way through the Anatolian countryside, she soon heard that David Hogarth, her mentor, was working in Karchemish, so, hoping to meet him, she crossed the Euphrates at the same place as Crassus' doomed Roman legion before it met its fateful end against the Parthians at the Battle of Carrhae in 53 BC. She arrived at Carchemish only to find that Dr Hogarth had already departed but wrote in her diary that instead she met a charming young archaeologist by the name of T.E. Lawrence a kindred spirit and fellow Oxfordian history graduate, who showed her his own digs and with whom she would go on to have a long and enduring friendship. T.E. Lawrence, remembered by Hollywood in Peter O'Toole's dramatic portrayal as Lawrence of Arabia, was, like Gertrude Bell, a solitary and enigmatic figure. As a student... He had cycled thousands of kilometres around France, documenting medieval fortress architecture, which gained him, like Gertrude, a first-class honours degree. He also made the acquaintance of Dr. David Hogarth, who would likewise become his mentor, and offer him a scholarship working on his Hittite Karchemish project in Syria. Like Bell, Lawrence developed a deep and abiding love of Arabia and its people, becoming fluent in the language and developing a wide network of contacts and friendships that would become integral to the liberation of the region from Ottoman control. He was also deeply troubled by what he saw as British designs of their own and his own complicit participation, despite his best efforts to secure independence for the Arabs. Gertrude and Lawrence collaborated during the Arab Revolt, but in different capacities. She became a political attaché and strategic advisor to British military commanders, while Lawrence worked directly with Arab forces, playing a key role in coordinating guerrilla warfare against the Turks. Her expertise lay in her deep understanding of the Arab tribes and political dynamics while Lawrence was known for his military strategy and his ability to foster relationships with Arab leaders. Their collaboration was marked by mutual respect for each other's skills. After World War I, both Bell and Lawrence were involved in the post-war political settlement of the Middle East. They both participated in the Cairo Conference and played a role in the establishment of what would become the modern states of Jordan and Iraq. They were both also involved in the Paris Peace Conference, advocating for Arab interests, but, like many, were ultimately left feeling disillusioned with the outcomes. While Bell would continue to be immersed in the politics of the region, particularly the establishment of an independent Iraq, Lawrence became so disillusioned and shamed by the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which carved up the Middle East among European powers, that he withdrew from public life altogether, later volunteering for the Royal Air Force under a pseudonym, and eventually dying in a motorbike accident in 1935. But again, we're getting just a little ahead of ourselves. Now, where were we? Ah yes, Karchamish. Gertrude ended her second major expedition in Aleppo and then returned home to a family now facing significant financial upheaval. For some time, the steel and rail empire her grandfather had built up had been experiencing competition from abroad, and with plummeting commodity prices, the business was consolidated and merged with new partners. Isaac Lothian Bell had long since died, so Hugh had taken over the reins, further selling off or splitting their assets, which, though it temporarily improved cash flow and Gertrude's own income stream, significantly contracted the family's fortunes in the long run. Her experience of society life was mixed. On one level, she found herself frequently invited to political and diplomatic functions, where policymakers with an interest in Middle East affairs hung on her every word. Academically, too, she found herself now a serious contributor to archaeological publications and correspondence circles. But socially, the prevailing Victorian attitudes toward unmarried career women still earned her the condescension of salon matrons, who were the keepers of status and respectability. She had always been, despite both money and acclaim, and would always remain an outsider of the polite ladies' societies of London, who were tougher and even more discriminating than men when it came to admission to their clubs. But in amongst all this, her correspondence with the Doty Wileys, and now increasingly to Dick alone, began to show a boldness of affection that went way beyond flattery into outright flirtation. Dick's responses, in the beginning at least, were more measured, but it was clear that his marriage was, from early on, a complete farce, and he was utterly miserable. Of all the men she had met, Dick was the only one who seemed to understand and appreciate her, who was cut from the same cloth and who had the courage and panache to pursue his goals even at the risk of his own life. She was completely besotted by him. Over the next 18 months, he would at times visit her parents at the family home, alone, and the two would spend blissful days together Riding, talking and picnicking, though judging from the content in the flurry of letters that now went back and forth, there was no physical intimacy. For the first time since her broken engagement to Henry Cadogan, Gertrude was head over heels and left no doubt in Dick's mind about what she really wanted. But the forbidden romance came to a jarring halt when Dick was seconded to the Foreign Office as a boundary advisor in Albania in 1913, and as he was to travel with his wife, he begged Gertrude not to write to him privately, advising that, as painful as it was, he now had no choice but to destroy her love letters. Gertrude was beside herself, so... She packed her gear and headed out for the sixth of her now epic journeys across the Middle East. But this time she was going to go where few Europeans had ever been and fewer still had survived to tell the tale. Either her success would overwhelm him with such admiration, not to mention anxiety for her safety, that he would finally pluck up the courage to leave his wife or her death would torment him forever. As far as she was concerned, this was going to be victory or death. Inshallah. Her objective was the mysterious fortress city of Hayil, home to the Rashid dynasty, considered one of the most ferocious of all the Arabian clans. The Ottomans had long supported the Rashids, supplying them with guns and munitions in return for their loyalty. But with the rising tide of anti-Ottoman sentiment and concurrent inter-tribal warfare, the rival dynasty of Saud to the south was poised to attack and dislodge them as the dominant local player. The British, who had been warily observing an escalation in German activity in the region, had received intelligence that they were, in turn, shoring up both the Ottomans and the Rashids with large-bore weapons, possibly with the intent of encouraging an attack on the Suez Canal, and probably Egypt as well, which was, at the time, a British puppet state. Consequently, they themselves began supplying arms and cash to the rival Saud. Gertrude offered to gather intelligence on the ground, under the guise of retracing the journey of a previous famous explorer who just happened to be Dick's uncle. But neither the British nor the Ottoman governments would grant her either protection or indeed a permit to travel there. Several other travellers in decades past had been killed in the attempt. One had even committed suicide on the 1,600-mile-long camel trek through some of the most brutal desert conditions in the world. But she wasn't about to retrace anyone's footsteps. She was going to sweep an arc right through the centre of the Arabian plateau and the uncharted Nefud where only Arabs with local knowledge dared to travel. It was ambition bordering on complete recklessness so she kept her plans to herself and, as usual, snuck off under everyone's nose, even though she had now assembled the largest caravan she had travelled in thus far, thirteen camels in all. It was full not only of her own usual luxuries and status symbols, but also substantial gifts that would be necessary to win over the fierce nomadic warlords in whose hands she was now placing her fate she was introduced to a Rashid agent in Damascus, to whom she gave 200 pounds for a promissory note that was to be cashed in in Hayil for ongoing supplies. In the meantime, her loyal servant Fatouh had come down with malaria, so she left him to recover and altered her route to skirt around the Druze Mountains to give him a couple of weeks to catch up to her. Along the way, she could sense the agitation of tribesmen in the air, with the caravan, at one point, being attacked and robbed, only for one of her guides to be recognized and the stolen goods awkwardly returned. Bandit activity was surging, and so, to hedge her bets, she hired several more escorts from other local tribes to secure her safe passage. Despite her firmly atheist stance, Gertrude's letters home began to be increasingly flavoured with colloquial religious Arabisms, such as God willing, heaven be praised, inshallah, and please God. When the caravan reached Madaba, she was pleased to see Fatuh, who had been given a clean bill of health and was already waiting for her. But just as they were about to move on, they were surrounded by Turkish soldiers with the local government official placing them all under arrest. Turns out they had been searching for her since Damascus. He was none too pleased to have taken so long to apprehend them. A flurry of letters were dispatched, both by Gertrude and her captor, who didn't quite know what to do with her unexpectedly huge retinue. Gertrude's letter requested permission to study ruins at a nearby archaeological site, which would sanction her being there and also relieve the frustrated official of any further logistical challenges. While they camped out waiting for the news, key dignitaries from Amman in modern Jordan rode out to pay their respects to the ad hoc court of this Queen of the Desert. Fortunately, The local governor intervened and gave his permission, perhaps under some pressure from local chiefs. So the soldiers departed and Gertrude continued on her way.
1: My troubles are over. I have today permission from the governor to go when I like. The permission comes just in time, for all my plans were laid and I was going to run away tomorrow night. They could not have caught me. However, I am now save the trouble and the amusement.
0: Straight into the desert they went again, making their way through bandit-infested valleys as they made their way up the central foothills. It became necessary to take on ever more refix for protection until she now had a substantial retinue. Some of these guides bringing along their entire families and tents. Gertrude was now a fat, juicy target for marauders and had to negotiate, threaten and bluff her way out of being stripped of all her goods on several occasions before she had come anywhere near Ha'il. Her fame and reputation was all that stood between success and disaster. Onward they traveled through many wadis or canyons, and up onto the plateau. Coming into Ha'waitat country, which was ruled by Prince Aouda Abu Tayi, made famous by Anthony Quinn and his cringeworthy fake aquiline nose in the Hollywood film Lawrence of Arabia. They approached his camp and came across his brother Muhammad, who, in Aouda's absence, treated them generously, even riding out with Gertrude to show her some pre-Islamic ruins in the hills. With additional chaperones, they now continued across the great undulating sandy expanses and jagged black flint mountains of the Nejd towards Hayil.
1: We turn towards Nejd, inshallah, renounced by all the powers that be. The stony hills draw together in front of us like the gates of an abandoned Hades. A desolate world, cold and grey, a mountain of evils. I do not feel at all like the daughter of kings, which I am supposed to be here.
0: Finally, out of water and out of food, exhausted and filthy for not having washed for days, Gertrude and her caravan made it to the outskirts of Ha'il, where they were greeted by an armed escort, pennants flying, who escorted the caravan to a campground, while she was taken into the whitewashed glistening fortress, and to an apartment elegantly decorated, where two slaves were put at her disposal. One of whom would relate the story, not only of the clan, but of the plight of women within. According to ancient Islamic custom in the area, it was forbidden for a woman to leave the house, except on only three occasions. When conducted to the home of her bridegroom, when attending the funeral of her parents, and upon her own death. But ordinary women were occasionally allowed to visit their relatives in the dead of night, when they were least likely to be seen. She was soon visited, in her suite, by the uncle of the current emir, or prince, who was the palace majordomo, and who advised her that the ruler was away on campaign and wouldn't return, perhaps for weeks. Impatient and desperate to cash in her cheque to replenish supplies, she was disappointed to learn that no monetary exchange could happen in the master's absence. She would also be confined to quarters until the emir's return, as the local clerics were uncomfortable at having an unchaperoned woman wander about the city. Frustrated at being unable to carry out her survey, she had no choice but to wait and amuse herself in her room. Her attendant slave reported that several of the preceding emirs had been assassinated and that the current one, a mere teenager, was the last of the clan. The whole city was jumpy and in no mood for entertaining guests. Since no cash was forthcoming, she had no choice but to sell off many of her camels and to let go most of her entourage, who soon left town having joined other caravans. One day rolled past another, and things were getting desperate. She had effectively been a prisoner for almost two weeks, with little to do but talk with the slaves, though she did spend some time with the emir's harem. Then, finally, strangely, she was abruptly informed one morning that she was free to go, and, what's more, would be allowed to walk the ramparts and explore the marketplace before she left. She also received a bag of money, the cash she was expecting. It was as if they were suddenly trying to get rid of her. So, early next morning, Gertrude gathered her things, what few drivers she had left, and hastily hit the road. Or should I say, sand. It was impossible to head south for Riyadh with the now greatly reduced supplies, so they headed due east towards the Euphrates, dodging yet more bandits and raiders along the way. For the first time, she now admitted feeling afraid, and in her journal, she despaired that the whole journey had been a complete waste of time. But it was clear to her that the Rashid dynasty now reduced by constant treachery and murder to just one 16-year-old boy, was definitely headed for extinction, and that their southern enemies, the Saud, were poised to dominate the region. It was intelligence that would prove crucial to allied planners in the coming years, but for now it was on to Baghdad and some much-needed rest at the British residency. There she was to receive letters from Dick, who was now in Addis Ababa and deeply involved in British Foreign Office affairs. She was keen to get home, this adventure having taken more of a toll than all the others combined. But there were still hundreds of miles of Syrian desert to cross, Gazoo raids to avoid, and dozens of sheiks en route to pay her respects to before finally approaching the green fields and abundant vineyards of Damascus. At last they arrived, and she collapsed into the arms of doctors at the British hospital. The Rashid agent, who had issued her with the promissory note, called in to see her, and told her that the emir's uncle, the major Dormo, who had kept her under house arrest, had been executed upon the emir's return. It turns out that he was plotting a peace deal with the Saud behind his nephew's back. Several months later, the emir himself was murdered in revenge and so ended the bloody saga of the Rashid dynasty. Home in London, by mid-1914... It was a very different England to the one she had left, with everybody in a state of anxious tension. The Archduke of Austria had been assassinated in Sarajevo by a Serbian extremist, and all of Europe was locked into mutual defence pacts and treaties that soon unravelled into a cascade of war declarations. Dick was sent to Egypt and the Foreign Office was scrambling to find out who the Arabs would support if the Ottomans joined in the war. Somebody in Cairo mentioned Gertrude Bell, so she received a letter requesting a report on Arab loyalties. The Bell Report, as it came to be known, was a comprehensive white paper that suggested Syrian Arabs, disliking both the Ottomans and the French, might be amenable to a British alliance, and its depth of insight was to leave an impression on the big boys in Whitehall. But the stalemate in France that soon ensued meant that, for the time being, all British attention was directed to the European theatre, and Gertrude had little to do but volunteer for the Red Cross. Eventually, she made her way to Paris and found a job organising files for the Missing and Wounded Office, which was inundated with requests for information on soldiers missing in action, and the staff were struggling to cope with the sheer volume of inquiries. Almost single-handedly, she completely reorganised the enormous filing system, organised reports gathered from incoming battalion casualties, such that hundreds of files were now being routinely closed each week, with the French also soon adopting her system. Later she was recalled back to London, where she similarly reorganised the domestic data system of the Wounded and Missing Office to account for the huge volume of undocumented Allied troops convalescing on home soil. Typically working herself to exhaustion, During a rare break at a function in London, somebody casually mentioned how dreadful it was that Dick Doty Wiley had been killed at Gallipoli. Nobody knew of her relationship with him. She sat there stunned, then ran out in tears to everybody's surprise. Of course, she knew he had re-enlisted, and had even seen him briefly in London before he left for the front. On the 26th of April, 1915, the troops under his command landed on V Beach and were subjected to relentless strafing from the castle and village beyond the beach. Armed with only his walking cane and refusing to personally fire upon the Turkish people he had come to love, Lieutenant Colonel Doty Wiley casually strolled up the laneways, encouraging his men as bullets whizzed by. His soldiers would go on to take out the machine gun posts and secure the fort. Their commanding officer's calm demeanour, walking nonchalantly into the hail of bullets, was described by eyewitness accounts as nothing less than heroic in the way that only the British can conceive of. Powell suggests that Dick had recently declared his intention to divorce his wife when Gertrude demanded that she could no longer live without him. His wife responded that if he dared try, she would take her own life, which would have had all sorts of religious as well as social implications that he dared not unleash. Unable to be with the woman he loved, and unable to divorce the wife that tormented him, it seems he chose the only honourable way out he could come up with death in battle. Shot by a sniper, his men buried him where he lay, and the Turkish authorities so respected him that his remains the only solitary war grave on the entire peninsula. Dick Doty Wiley was the highest-ranking officer to win the Victoria Cross during the entire Gallipoli campaign. Now, and for the second time, at the age of forty-six, fate had tragically snatched her beloved away. Gertrude was distraught and buried herself even deeper into her work, eventually extending her filing system to include German POWs, who were in camps all around the country. It was work that would earn her royal honours, but as the war expanded, it became clear that her real talents were being wasted, so she soon received yet another request and joined her old mentor, David, now Lieutenant Commander Hogarth, in Cairo who was working closely with T.E. Lawrence at the Admiralty Intelligence Bureau, hoping to foment an Arab revolt against the Ottomans. Her maps and in-depth knowledge of tribal alliances proved invaluable to Lawrence's future actions in the desert, and they spent long hours discussing how best to motivate and organise a rebellion. The problem was that there had never been a clear pan-Arab consciousness, nor a united Arab nation. Instead, there was a myriad of ethnic, tribal and religious groups, whose feuds and alliances were in a state of constant flux that made the Balkans look like a hippie love-in. The nomadic Bedouin, who would have to play a key role in any insurrection, were a fiercely independent and aloof culture existing on the fringes of the habitable world who regarded the surrounding settled peoples with disdain and their own freedom to roam and raid and pillage as a God-given right. Even the Turks feared to enter the desert where these marauders held sway. Appeals to patriotism and independence would not sway them. As far as they were concerned, they were already free and independent. The only way to recruit them would be to pay them off as mercenaries, with gold and guns, lots of it, along with the promise of more loot and plunder of Turkish strongholds. The other non-migratory Arabs throughout Mesopotamia, who had a proud history of mighty empires, were another story, however, and if the correct leader were placed in charge, the Bureau believed it was possible to mobilize them against the Ottomans. But these people would insist on nothing less than a guarantee of complete sovereignty, and they would need to have their religious institutions kept completely intact. No imam, Sunni nor Shia, would ever allow infidels to control their destiny no matter how awful the Turkish yoke might have been. At least they were Muslim. The British were acutely aware of this and were terrified that the millions of Muslims living under the British Raj in India would respond to the Ottoman call for jihad, jeopardising their tenuous hold on the entire subcontinent. Indeed, the British had anticipated this problem even before the war had begun, and in 1914 had entered into negotiations with Hussein bin Ali al-Hashimi, who was already acknowledged as the protector of the holy places, being the Sharif and Emir of Mecca and a significant power broker in his own right. As they saw it, Hussein was the best candidate to both unify the Arabs and block the Ottoman call to jihad. But the British government in Delhi remained unconvinced, openly opposing the entire Arab revolt project as a catastrophe in the making. But in the wake of the failed Gallipoli campaign, pressure mounted on the now renamed Arab Bureau to expedite a revolution, whose primary intent was to tie down tens of thousands of Ottoman troops and prevent their deployment to other theatres of war. Consequently, Lord Kitchener ratified a deal granting the Hashemite emir in Mecca huge territorial concessions if he would raise an army and aid them in molesting the Turks. Nobody in London seriously believed that a unified Arab state was possible, so making a promise they couldn't easily keep was considered a moot point. Both Gertrude and T.E. Lawrence disagreed, and they would both go out of their way to make Arab independence happen, but for now she was dispatched to Delhi to try and talk the Viceroy of India, her old family friend, Lord Charles Harding, whom she had known since his days as ambassador in Romania, into supporting the plan. But Harding not only considered it untenable, he also believed that in the unlikely event of success, any post-war reorganisation of Mesopotamia should be placed under the jurisdiction of the Indian Viceroyalty. After all, the British had managed to control the entire Indian subcontinent with basically a handful of troops, and he expected Arabia would be just as easy to dominate. Gertrude knew better, but the only way to get him on side and commit much-needed manpower and supplies would be to agree and reassure him that the British would indeed hang on to the territory afterwards. It was a lie she was willing to tell if it meant winning him over. The situation, of course, was quite complex. Sober heads in London, by now, clearly understood that creating, financing and policing yet another imperial outpost was going to be a far greater liability than an asset. Pacifying the Arabs was an altogether different proposition to that of the Indians. It was clear to progressive thinkers in Whitehall that the days of colonialism were numbered, even in India and that any ongoing governance of post-war territories would need to be done through international mediation and support. But this was still some ways off, and in the meantime, the British were desperate to win the war, even if it meant they might lose India in the process. So, they negotiated with anyone who was a potential ally, including Sharif Hussein's own enemy, Ibn Saud with whom they concluded a protection treaty in 1915, if he would also turn against the Ottomans. Considering his extended war against the Rashids of the north, for Saud this was a no-brainer, and so the British now had two allies, both poised to attack the Ottomans, though their own mutual enmity made the whole thing rather volatile, for which the British would need to come up with a contingency. One such solution was to partition the Ottoman Empire after the war. The government, prior to 1917, had largely favoured its reorganisation along ethnic and religious lines, while the new government, under Lloyd George, felt it would be far too monumental a task to complete quickly, and that it would be far more expedient for the Allies to divide the former empire into spheres of European influence. The British would administer most of the southern regions, France would administer the regions of northern Syria, Lebanon and southeastern Turkey and Russia would administer parts of Armenia and the Caucasus. A secret deal, known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, was hatched in 1916 behind the scenes as World War I raged on all around them. 1917 was to be a year of major headaches. Sharif Hussein, long anxious about Turkish penetration onto the peninsula via their railway from Damascus, was no friend of the Ottoman Empire. He and many of his family had been held as political hostages in Constantinople for many years. So when the British offered him kingship over all the Arabs, With the support for a universal caliphate, with him at its head, it was an offer too good to refuse. He declared war on the Ottomans in June of 1916, which his three sons, Emirs Ali, Abdullah and Faisal, his eldest, second and third in line respectively, prosecuted on his behalf. The year began promisingly enough for the Arabs. The Hashemite forces, with the help of the British, were making advances and had won a number of strategic engagements against the Turks. The railway that supplied Ottoman forces was constantly being sabotaged, starving them of resources and reinforcements, and by June, T.E. Lawrence and King Hussein's third son Prince Faisal had taken Aqaba, the last Ottoman-held port on the Red Sea. But by October, the Russian Revolution had precipitated its withdrawal from the war, and the Bolshevik government now publicised all the secret deals that their predecessor government had struck with the other allies, notably the Sykes-Picot Agreement. It almost caused the entire Arab revolt to come to a grinding halt. As both the Syrians in the north and Sharif Hussein in the south demanded a please explain from their British allies. To them, the Sykes Pico Agreement flew in the face of their promises of complete independence. American President Woodrow Wilson, whose country was poised to finally commit fully to the war effort, was livid and made it abundantly clear that there was no way the United States would support a neo-colonial carve-up in the Middle East. Prime Minister Lloyd George scrambled to reassure Arab allies that the Sykes-Picot Agreement had been superseded by events on the ground and that they had every intention of honouring their commitment to Arab independence. Whether or not he really meant it has been up for debate ever since, but a secret letter from Parliament to Sharif Hussein, known as the Bassett Letter, confirmed this commitment, as did a formal declaration in June of 1918, known as the Declaration to the Seven, in which the British government publicly affirmed its commitment that any future state in the region be based on the principle of consent from the governed. As if to hammer the idea home, Woodrow Wilson issued his own now famous 14 points speech, which stipulated that all nationalities which were now under Ottoman rule should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. But wait, there's more. Adding to this quagmire was growing pressure on the British government from within to promote the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Since the 1880s, repeated pogroms in Russia and Central Europe had seen a rising wave of anti-Semitism and an exodus of hundreds of thousands of Jews fleeing persecution and murder. A number of influential members of the British Parliament lobbied on behalf of the formation of a permanent Jewish homeland in Palestine, at the time a nebulous collection of Ottoman provinces. And despite opposition from several quarters, these ideas were crystallized into a public document that would become known as the Balfour Declaration, in which the nature and extent of this homeland remained vague and undefined but that the rights of all other ethnic and religious groups in the region were to be strenuously maintained. It was an intentionally nebulous document, presumably aimed at garnering the support of the international Jewish lobby, without offering the explicit guarantee of independent statehood. But the idea of it nevertheless bothered Sharif Hussein, and he demanded a clarification from London, which came in the form of yet another secret correspondence, the Hogarth letter, again rather nebulously reassuring the Sharif that it would in no way jeopardise Arab sovereignty, nor did it explicitly state that an autonomous Jewish state was being planned. Unfortunately for the British, they had just boxed themselves into a corner, but for now all that mattered was the defeat of Germany. So far as European influence on the ground was concerned, both Lawrence and Gertrude expressed dismay at the publication of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Lawrence's now close relationship to Prince Faisal caused him abiding shame at being a British officer, while Gertrude, on the other hand, was not about to let either London or Paris interfere with her own plans to help the Arabs achieve their objective. Both were similarly sceptical about the implementation of the Balfour Declaration, despite Prince Faisal's belief that Jewish immigration might actually be good for the region economically. He and Zionist leader Chaim Weizmann eventually signed an agreement in 1919, believe it or not, in support of Jewish immigration, as long as the Zionist movement would itself support Arab independence. Faisal believed that the Jewish and British lobby would counter French colonial designs in greater Syria. Gertrude later noted that it was, ironically, the Zionist movement that solidified the idea of a Palestinian nation, where there had previously not been one, and whose inhabitants had never been consulted in deliberations on their future and who now mobilised their opposition to immigration in a unified and vocal way. Gertrude predicted that the unchecked Jewish immigration now unleashed would cause significant enmity between the Arabs and Jews more broadly, where hitherto there had been peaceful coexistence. There were at least 50,000 Jews living in Baghdad alone, with many more across the entire Middle East and she was seriously concerned that violence would spill over into the other major cities, leading to a catastrophic expulsion of Jewry from every other Muslim territory. This, indeed, is exactly what eventually happened, and, ironically, it only increased the flood of Jewish refugees into Palestine, that under the Sykes-Picot Agreement covered not only what we today recognize as Israel— but also the entire state of Jordan, parts of Lebanon and modern Syria. When the Allied nations met at the Paris peace talks in 1919, delegations from many minorities throughout the former Ottoman Empire were invited to present their case for grievance and recognition. The conference had several major objectives. To formalise an end to the war, and impose punitive measures on the losers, to break up and redraw the borders of the defunct losing empires, and to establish independent new states from the remains, and to establish a League of Nations, which was to oversee the process with mandates of temporary stewardship and training for new nations, till they were ready to govern themselves. It was also to provide a forum for future deliberation, dispute resolution, and to provide security guarantees from an international perspective. Scores of ethnic and religious minorities from all over the world attended, including dozens from the region that was now being called Iraq, all hoping for independence, or at least some degree of autonomy, and Gertrude sent there as a political advisor by the British administration in Baghdad, fought hard to promote their interests at a conference where the big four power brokers were too busy squabbling amongst themselves to devote much energy to the claims of ethnic groups many of them had never even heard of. The result was a rather unsatisfactory one for most, and the punitive measures levied on Germany in particular have been described by historians as being directly responsible for the nightmare that was to engulf Europe just 20 years later. Even Japan, who was an ally, found itself sidelined when its call for the Charter of the League of Nations to carry a declaration of equality for all ethnic and racial groups was met with silence, is, ironically, Considered by many to be the slap in the face that motivated its own imperialist and racist doctrines, that caused so much horror and tragedy in subsequent years. Faisal and his army had meanwhile entered Damascus, and the newly established Syrian Congress had already declared its loyalty to Sharif Hussein, but by 1920, Faisal, who was nevertheless viewed by many locals as a foreigner, had failed to convince his congressional allies to support the Balfour Declaration, even if it meant the proposed Jewish homeland were to exist under Arab sovereignty. So he too now withdrew his support for it, fearing a local backlash. Instead he at least managed to get the French to sign an agreement recognising the right of Syrians to unite in governing themselves as an independent nation, much as the British had done in regards to clarifying their position on the Sykes-Picot Agreement. In March, the new Syrian Congress declared Faisal king of Syria, the territory of which was drawn by them to extend from the Gulf of Aqaba to southern Turkey encompassing the entire Levant up to the Syrian desert. But meanwhile, at the San Remo conference, the victorious allies ignored the Syrian Congress altogether and went ahead implementing the League of Nations version of the now modified Sykes-Picot Agreement in which the French and British, rather than possessing, were instead given a temporary mandate to act as caretaker governments until the locals were supposedly ready to govern themselves. Trouble was that Syria, as mentioned, had already declared itself an independent country, with its own self-established borders, Congress and now head of state. So they rejected the mandate out of hand, as both unwanted and unnecessary. The French... Who had decided that they knew better than the locals how to implement self-determination, now used their mandate as a pretext to grace the Syrians and Lebanese with the generous benefit of an invasion, ousting its new government and imposing martial law and a puppet regime of their own choosing. Faisal was now almost literally king for a day and fled with his cabinet into the British sector. Meanwhile, things across in Mesopotamia were getting even more messy. Gertrude had in 1917, if you recall, managed to convince the Indian viceroy to support the Arab revolt and to put aside his own anachronistic colonial designs of annexing Mesopotamia under the Indian government. At his instigation she was now seconded to General Sir Percy Lake's headquarters at Basra, where she would assist the current political adviser, Sir Percy Cox, in trying to unite the many southern tribes of Kuwait, the Shiites, the Persians and other Iraqi Arabs, to put their own feuds aside and help the British push up river and liberate Baghdad. She was also to act as liaison between the Delhi and Cairo headquarters. British Army Headquarters was yet another boys' club that she had no choice but to muscle in on, particularly as the British were having some major setbacks in their offensive up the Tigris, and they were in no mood to consult a mere woman on how to fix their military problems. But in her usual style, she simply swanned into the officers' strategy meeting pointed out the substantial deficiencies of their maps, contact network and intelligence, and then swanned back out again while they were left scratching their heads and in no doubt whatsoever about her being an indispensable asset.
1: Today I lunched with all the generals, and as an immediate result they moved me and my maps and books onto a splendid great veranda with the cool room behind it where I sit and work all day long. I think I have got over most of the difficulties and the growing cordiality of my colleagues is a source of unmixed satisfaction.
0: Before long, she was appointed Oriental Secretary to Sir Percy Cox, the only female to occupy a political post during the entire war. But the Mesopotamian campaign was floundering, partly through poor intelligence and partly through strained resources, such that the British garrison at Kut, halfway up the Tigris between Basra and Baghdad, became completely enveloped in a Turkish counter-operation, such that thousands of British soldiers were forced to surrender. This humiliating debacle finally forced the War Office to allocate more troops and supplies to the theatre, and with Gertrude's cajoling of local sheiks to assist, Kut was eventually liberated, and Baghdad was captured by March of 1917. As the Turks withdrew, they pursued a scorched-earth policy of destroying infrastructure and burning administrative records and buildings, as well as bribing local warlords to raid British supplies. When the Allies moved northwards, they found a province in complete disarray. There had been a drought for several years, with no investment in maintenance of irrigation and infrastructure for over a century. The people were starving, and endemic disease was now rife. Gertrude had many friends now in Baghdad, and when the city was finally secure, she was called to move her office there and tasked with the enormous challenge of coordinating a relief effort, mobilising British military engineers to repair critical infrastructure and to liaise with local leaders to secure their cooperation in normalising day-to-day life. But with official records destroyed, and the entire corrupt and dysfunctional Turkish judiciary and governance mechanism now gone, they had to almost start from scratch, appointing poorly equipped and trained Arabs to take over the reins of all the arms of local government, from health care to education, law and policing. Gertrude had to approach local mosque imams and recruit them to assist in relief and administrative efforts. An approach that would normally be unthinkable for a woman, yet her reputation among the many local tribal sheiks was still so great that she was rarely ever disrespected, even among the highly conservative Shia clerics of the south. Yet, here too, she made an impact. The Turks, who were Sunni Muslims, viewed the Shia as apostates, and denied them vital resources and civil support for centuries. Gertrude saw to it that their mosques, schools and hospitals were apportioned British funds and civil engineers for repair, such that the Shia, perhaps more than any other group, came to see the British presence as temporarily preferable to the Turkish one, despite their being infidels. As the British continued their penetration further northward and the war eventually came to a close, Winston Churchill, who was at the time Minister for War and later Secretary of State for the colonies, voiced his alarm at the vast sums of money being spent on the relief and reconstruction of a region that had been a decaying Ottoman backwater for centuries. The British government, now in an economic slump and subject to ongoing waves of crippling domestic workers' strikes, was desperate to install a functioning government in order to cut costs, which was in the order of tens of millions of pounds per year. Gertrude worked night and day trying to establish a representative Iraqi parliament that would be expected to soon run independently. Albeit with some ongoing British economic and advisory support. But Mesopotamia was a region in turmoil. There was, as mentioned, no sense of pan-Arab nationalism. It was each tribe, each sect, each ethnic group for itself. Even the long-suffering Kurds in the north had several mutually hostile factions that refused to unite or even define their own territorial boundaries. It was clear that for the time being, unlike what was going on in Damascus, self-government with the help of European advisers was still some way off, and that British government with Arab advisers was the only viable option. Critics who dismissed this as simply a veiled extension of British colonialism Fail to comprehend the anarchic, undemocratic tribal relationships that were in no shape to simply come together into a cohesive congressional body in the way Damascus had done. The alternative of perhaps establishing dozens of microstates was considered economically and politically not viable. It was Gertrude's view that at the very least, rather than a British governor, the region would need to have an unaligned Muslim head of state that was agreeable to all of the locals. But again, there were so many mutually hostile and balkanized groups that it made choosing one highly problematic. She believed that the only viable option, acceptable to all factions, would be to appoint the sons of Sharif Hussein because he not only held the holy places of Mecca and Medina, but more importantly, his sons were direct descendants, both maternally and paternally, of the prophet himself. She believed that this fact would confer the greatest available legitimacy to a future head of state, and would overcome the substantial objections that his ethnic and sectarian background might inevitably raise. Meanwhile, Ibn Saud, a rival and another potential candidate, had been busy mopping up Turkish control of Central Arabia, and he had now secured quite a solid power base of his own. But his austere Wahhabist sect of Islam was foreign to both Sunni and Shia alike, and it was unlikely to move either Levantine or Mesopotamian populations to support his aspirations of control beyond his traditional holdings on the peninsula. Ibn Saud would instead focus on expanding into the Sharif's hereditary domains and over the coming decades, the House of Saud would indeed establish itself as the unrivaled power in the region, even coming into possession of the holy cities on the west coast. When Winston Churchill convened the Cairo Conference in 1921, in which all the relevant field commanders were summoned to discuss British policy in their mandated regions, Gertrude, conspicuous as the only woman present, argued forcefully, along with Lawrence, for the British to not make the same mistake as the French and to propose the Sharif's sons as heads of state the second eldest, Abdullah, for a new state to be carved off Palestine that would be called Transjordan and which would not be subject to the Jewish homeland question. They also called for the now-exiled Faisal to be installed in a new state to be called Iraq, both of which would be subject to a plebiscite in which local populations would hold ultimate approval. Against Gertrude's advice, Which was to grant Abdullah control of the entire region, the British would continue to manage the now rump western part of Palestine, but limit the immigration of Jews in order to placate the local Muslim and, it should be said, Christian populations, until such time as an agreeable local solution could be found. But Churchill's subsequent visit to Jerusalem and his meetings with Arab, Christian and Jewish delegations already made it abundantly clear that this was to be the mother of all migraines for the British, and that even Churchill's legendary optimism was clearly delusional. During the war, the British had made promises that were, at their core, mutually exclusive, hoping that the vagaries of the wording would give them enough wiggle room to produce a viable compromise. But despite their best efforts over the following decades, both the Arabs and the Jews turned against them in continuous riots and violence that would end with the British chucking in the towel and surrendering their mandate in despair to the United Nations in 1947. The rest is a story we are all now all too familiar with. Right at the outset, Gertrude was to write,
1: The Balfour Declaration is a wholly artificial scheme, divorced from all relation to facts, and I wish it the ill success it deserves. It's like a nightmare in which you can foresee all the horrible things which are going to happen and can't stretch out your hand to prevent them.
0: But in both Transjordan and Iraq, the story was significantly different. Despite the multitude of potential conflicts, and there were conflicts, as many locals became frustrated at the lack of speed of handover, with Gertrude's aggressive lobbying throughout the Kurdish north, Faisal managed to eventually achieve sufficient public support to be elected as head of state of the now large, multi-ethnic nation that Lawrence believed was nevertheless doomed to fail. But Gertrude would work closely with Faisal to cement his popularity among Iraqi citizens and establish the requisite branches of government needed to rule fairly and effectively. He had even publicly referred to her as his sister, giving her complete freedom in his home and tutoring his sheltered wife, now Queen of Iraq, in the social and diplomatic duties of First Lady for what was intended to be a modern and progressive Muslim state. She had become quite a close confidant, facilitating his relationship with local leaders, who generally viewed Faisal as a greater foreigner even than Gertrude, who had by now earned herself a new nickname of al Katun, or Lady of the Court becoming a key mediator between Faisal's government and the British High Commission. She also had significant input into the establishment of Iraq's borders, and even the design of its flag. But Faisal's determination to stamp his own authority over the country, which was often insensitive to the concerns of minorities, eventually caused such friction between them that Gertrude was eventually sidelined from her role as his political advisor, and now into a more cultural one, in which she oversaw the establishment of the Baghdad Women's Hospital, the National Library of Iraq, and the National Archaeological Museum. She also held a ministerial position as Director of Antiquities, where she pushed for legislation to protect dig sites from being exploited by foreign archaeologists and to ensure that all projects in the future were licensed as joint ventures in a measure to preserve ownership of excavated material and to disrupt the black market trade in smuggled antiquities. But by now, in her late 50s, her health had deteriorated significantly. She had succumbed to regular bouts of bronchial disease, brought on by a lifetime of heavy smoking. Some have suggested that she had also been diagnosed with lung cancer. She also now had frequent bouts of malaria, and the oppressive summer heat in Baghdad was finally taking its toll. This, along with the news of the death of her dear brother Hugo, and her political alienation from Faisal was noted by many observers as having plunged her into a deep personal depression. On the 12th of July, 1926, her body was discovered in her bed by her loyal maid, presumably having died of an overdose of sleeping pills. Historians still debate whether the overdose was accidental or intentional. Her funeral and interment at the Anglican Cemetery in Baghdad was a huge affair, the cortege escorted by an entire army regiment, her coffin draped in both British and Iraqi flags, and attended by both British and Iraqi dignitaries. The news of her death, of course, spread quickly, and sheiks from many tribes poured into the city from far and wide. Jews, Muslims, Shia and Sunni, friends and strangers, rich and poor, by the tens of thousands, accompanied the procession to her tomb in a show of grief fitting for a queen. She would have loved it. So what can we say about this outspoken and passionate advocate of Arab rights? and her lasting influence on Middle Eastern affairs. Historians continue to debate her political legacy, which is undoubtedly complex, and not without its fair share of critics, though few could argue against her firm desire to promote the interests of the people she had come to love, even when it meant going against the Eurocentric program of her superiors. Her predictions in Palestine were clearly accurate, while her knowledge and conciliatory efforts among the traditional tribal groups throughout the Middle East fostered a growing confidence in a pan-Arab identity that gave them a greater international voice than might have otherwise been the case. She brought both their grievances and aspirations to the forefront of political debate at the League of Nations and was instrumental in deliberations about where borders were best drawn. Iraq, despite her best intentions, like much of the Middle East after her death, would go on to suffer decades of coups and counter-coups, especially after gaining complete independence in 1932. By 1958, yet another coup saw a new government oust its Hashemite monarchy altogether and form a socialist republic ruled by the Ba'ath Party, whose central emerging figure in the 1970s was Saddam Hussein, whose government downplayed and obscured her role in his country's history, despite the Ba'ath Party's very platform of pan-Arabism. That was itself the result of Gertrude's tireless efforts. During her life, she was entirely capable of ruthlessly manipulating everyone around her to get the outcome she wanted, though these objectives were rarely ever selfish or personal. She was certainly not averse to blowing her own trumpet, though she never sought public honours or titles for their own sake. She was a confident and highly motivated individual who set lofty goals for herself and almost always achieved them, typically against all the odds and prevailing social norms. She was an intellectual in every sense, and at the same time a hopeless romantic. She smashed gender stereotypes and challenged men at their own game, yet was at heart deeply sentimental. She could write stinging polemics, academic papers, and was the first woman to write a government white paper, yet was also an accomplished poet, travel writer, and translator of complex Persian and Arab literature. She weaponized her femininity to achieve her political ends, but was, at the same time, an avowed anti-suffrage campaigner a perhaps curious paradox and something that is now viewed by feminists as a stain on her legacy. She both loved and grieved deeply, yet always considered herself more fortunate than many others. Never truly satisfied, she died disappointed at how Iraq and its hand-picked leader failed to live up to her expectations, yet she was always questioning how she herself could do more. Gertrude Bell was a force of nature, earning the respect of even the most conservative of Shiite clerics and Bedouin warlords, yet nowadays has been largely forgotten by both the West and the Middle East. But her legacy as a traveller, mountaineer, linguist, archaeologist, photographer, spy, political analyst, and yes, even kingmaker, have made her perhaps the most underrated female political figure of our times, leaving an indelible imprint on the history of the early 20th century, and has given us a heroic figure well worthy of remembrance by future generations. If you enjoy this content, please take a moment to support my work by making a small donation through the links on the podcast website, or better still, by signing up as a Patreon supporter, where you can communicate with me directly, engage with the Heroes and Legends community, and get better insights and even involvement in my work and future videos. A video montage of this podcast also appears on our YouTube Heroes and Legends documentary channel. Please feel free to visit, like and share, and as always, thanks for listening.